Lights, camera, action. Hello and welcome to another edition of Movie Madness in association with Spitballing Pod. I'm Luke Byron, joined again by TK, no Keenan this week. I have told him he can join later if he wishes, but uh, unfortunately doesn't look likely. The matchup we'll be getting into this week is 1974's The Godfather Part 2 versus 1991's New Jack City. Um when I just said that was unfortunate, I don't mean unfortunate that you're here. I mean unfortunate that Keenan isn't. No, no. Maximum offence taken. It's okay. Bit of a smoother uh, start than last week when I was accusing you of all sorts inadvertently. Yeah, it's okay. So now I took it on the chin. Once again, same, same as last week, I'll say I feel like a, a caretaker manager. Slightly out of his depth, but trying to wing it. If I can get a new manager bounce for a couple of games, that's all I need. Well, if you're lucky, then uh, Rangnick's first game in charge. Remember, we for the first time we saw like pressing compilations. So maybe <laughs> there's fans out there that were doing things with like <laughs> I don't know something else completely obscure, and that's what they're praising you for last week. So he's really brought a gay game press to the uh, to the movie pod. Exactly. Um, we'll start with news of the week, and there isn't much of it. I wanted to ask your opinion, so. Netflix have announced that they've lost subscribers for the first time in 10 years. And I didn't know your thoughts on that. Well, if kind of if you slowly bump up the price, eventually a certain amount of people will draw a line, won't they? And I think that's essentially what's happened to them. They eventually they caught a bad timing. If you wanted to get political, yeah. people that have a lot of money, then uh, unfortunate for them, but don't be such greedy cunts. No, and I want to put on the record now none of us do this so i just want to make that abundantly clear but in an age when it is fairly easy to find films online like if you want to find (laughs) a film effectively your price model needs to ensure you'd rather pay for the convenience of doing that than go through the trouble of finding it and so at the point yeah so it's not worth stealing yeah when the scales tip and it's like oh, well, I'd rather risk getting this virus on my laptop and pressing through these two pop-ups to get here than you're in a bad way. And at a time when you've got less content than ever before, or less meaningful content than ever before, putting your price up, yeah, probably not a good idea. No, it seems hideous time, doesn't it? It's not even like they had like a big new series out just now that you could go, right, people will put up with it for that. It's just... So from what I've read and... I think this sounds very possible. And I saw their CEO has kind of mentioned this previously. I think it's with HBO Max in America where they offer two price points and it's one with ads and one without. And so the rumors I've seen, they're going to say, well, hang on a minute, we'll actually go back to our previous price point, but that'll be our kind of light subscription where you will get adverts during what you're watching and the increased fee will be without adverts. And then bank on enough people saying, well, I don't really want to two thirds through the way of the latest horror film, have an advert of that God knows what, and then bank on them sticking with the higher subscription price. I see. Yeah. Not bad thinking, I guess. 
be annoying but there we go because one of the best things with like things like this where they like they'll send you a message saying like, that no times are hard cost of living is going up as a result we've got to go up as well like, it's only going up because all you fucks keep rising yeah. your prices <laughs> I it from it's not just coming out of nowhere no and i had one from vodafone the other day and obviously we get it from everywhere and it's like I'm sure we're feeling this a bit a bit harder yeah, than you are. Yeah, yeah. We only made 200 million profit last year, guys. Come on, we've got to tighten our belts. you just got to rely on France rioting and sorting us all out. If we had that culture, we'd be, we'd be a lot better <laughs> off. Riot because it's a Tuesday. Fuck it, we don't like Tuesdays. Fuck it. Yeah, the fact that we can quite clearly reference any real riot during uh, the last, like, 10 years probably shows how infrequent they are compared to France. And it's like uh, the riot of week two of April. They get a massive book out. Right. Which one are you referencing? Yeah. Here? Uh, what else have we got this week? Liam Neeson says he's open to a Star Wars return, but only for a movie. He does not want to deal with a TV show. Yeah. Good sport. So do you think that's the best move for Liam Neeson at this point? Like, I don't know if you've seen the latest film he's done and not actually watched, but even just seen that he's got a film out. Um, I guess the fact that I have to ask probably tells you the type of film it is. So is this not, I guess like easy money for him. And if you want to increase your star power, <laughs> it feels a, like a slam dunk. Is he throwing up a Hail Mary? What? It's not even like Time's a hell. Tough. I need, I need Qui Gon Jim back. This is like asking him if he wants to run it from the one yard line, because his alternatives are films you can't that miss with a Star Wars film, no, guess, aren't even being advertised as one mm. of these shit like Sky Movies ones, like Batista blowing up Upton Park. <laughs> I mean, but didn't Qui Gon Jim die? He did, but at the same time. That you can't go back and be them. like a younger version. <laughs> Liam Neeson's going to struggle with that in a minute. That doesn't really stop you in Star Wars. Um, Fair enough. Like, I mean, it's not a spoiler at this point. Like, the Emperor was still plodding on in, in the most recent Star Wars, and he died okay. three films before. Fair enough. Um, so, yeah, I guess if they want to do it, they will. And they, what they've done at the moment is they've just done what's coming out soon, a prequel series with... Uh, Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan again and they brought back Hayden Christensen who's going to play kind of late Anakin, early Darth Vader so they can They're getting the old band back together Yeah, exactly and I think both of them said they wouldn't return to Star Wars before and I'm pretty sure Keating labelled Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen as one of the worst actors he's seen which felt harsh (laughs) I can see what he means though he's a bit Ellie didn't watch that film of uh him being under anaesthetic while Jessica Alba cries for him in the waiting room. Jesus. And he's secretly awake the whole time, hearing the doctors plan to kill him. Oh, God. It was like a standard, like, 2007 suspense film. Um, a Blair Witch Project reboot is reportedly being considered at Lionsgate. Okay. Do we need another needed. Blair Witch film? <laughs> no, I don't know if anyone's asking for that, are they? Because I will say, the most recent one, for as much as it was panned, it was one of my most terrifying cinema experiences of my life. Oh, wow. Mainly in that 
the whole thing, it wasn't that scary after the fact, but it was literally just jump scares. And I'm the worst for being caught by that. I mean, you sat next to me for A Quiet Place Part 2. <laughs> so I can see how you could get a good cinema experience out of a Blair Witch reboot, but I don't know if anyone really needs that. I mean, people have stopped going to the cinema and they're on like Paranormal Activity 9 or something mental like that. So Yeah. Never been as big on Blair Witch as a lot of people are. Well, I watched the first one and I guess once you'd seen newer found footage films, it was harder to be as invested in it. Yeah, you're probably less impressed, aren't you, once you've seen as others? The main thing I loved with Blair Witch was reading up on the marketing campaign around it and how it inspired like Cloverfield. And it was just nuts Mm. where they paid the people they couldn't go to the premiere because they were telling people they were actually missing. <laughs> and they put like missing posters up like before the film was even advertised and all of that. Is, that is sensational. Yeah. Uh, and finally, Serena Williams says she wants King Richard to start an MCU like franchise. <laughs> what? I don't know, like, if you can have like Australian Open Six and it has the same impact as like. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Captain America versus Iron Man. Yeah, what does she even mean? Is it solely based on them? Is it based on different families? I, I don't know. I feel like even they may get a bit tiresome after a while, but some people say the same about Marvel films, I guess. Yeah, but I, mean, I guess at least Marvel have like the characters set out already. You've got yeah, I'm not out of comics from. Yeah, she's lost her mind, hasn't she? Yeah, I'm not selling the franchise now. I'm just trying to work out what it, what the hell she means. She's also trying to buy Chelsea, doesn't she? So she's obviously just on a rampage. Yeah, her and Lewis Hamilton. I feel like they've probably not read into Chelsea enough, or they may steer clear. Yeah, it's going to be a tricky one for Hamilton. You're going to have to pay some tax on that, boss. <laughs> All right, let's get into The Godfather Part 2. His medical condition is reported as terminal. He's only going to live another six months anyway. He's been dying of the same heart attack for 20 years. That plane goes to Miami. That's right. That's where I want it met. Mike, that's impossible. They'll turn him over directly to the Internal Revenue, Customs, and half the FBI. It's not impossible. Nothing's impossible. It would be like trying to kill the president. There's no way we can get to him. Tom, you know you surprised me. If anything in this life is certain, if history's taught us anything, it says you can kill anyone. The early life and career of Vito Corleone in 1920s New York City was portrayed while his son Michael expands and tightens his grip on the family crime syndicate. Now, there's no light way to describe this. I mean, this is hailed as perhaps the greatest film ever made. Um, so there is a fair bit of pressure on us here when describing <laughs> it and going through it. Well, I think once we've shown we can handle Football Factory and Green Street in a week, I mean, really, the shackles <laughs> are off. I think it's loosened up for us. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, the critics. Now, the majority of the reviews I have here are all very good. I tried finding some of the original reviews, and they're a bit lengthy for kind of this format. But I can tell you now, there was mixed reviews when this came out. I don't know if you've seen that previously. And it kind of took a while for it to really sink in with people. Almost like an album where people tell you you have to go away and listen to it a few times first. 
Well, I could imagine there would have been a lot of um, potential for hot takes because obviously there would have been a lot of pressure going on to this film in the way that there wouldn't have been for the first one. Yeah. And so I imagine even in that day and age where you didn't have clickbait like we do now, there would have been potentially a market for someone going out and saying, this film ain't shit compared to the first one. Well, a lot of the kind of main critics whose names you would recognise, someone like uh, Roger Ebert or someone like that, mm. like he was critical of it the first time around and then kind of had to do a apologies <laughs> chat, like a re-review. <laughs> and then the second time around was like, I'll take it back. Great film. Sometimes they get hammered for that, but I don't I don't mind it so much. If you genuinely do correct yourself, I don't I don't hate it. There was another guy whose name escapes me and I think he gave it like a three out of four stars and <laughs> was criticizing like the depth of it and all of these kinds of things. Oh god. What a horrible take. I'll read you through what I've got though. So director Francis Ford Coppola furnished a fully fashioned gangster melodrama in the first film. In this one, he stretches his talent to encompass a genuine American tragedy. Mm-hmm. The cinematography is the third major element in Godfather Part 2, ranking with Coppola's direction and its major acting successes to create its convincing, epic quality. Such a plot-heavy movie reminds us what a pleasure it is to watch a film that immerses us completely in another world, with its own values, customs and people. That's a very good take. Pacino has the ability to look menacing and sympathetic at the same time, commanding your attention for the full three and a quarter hours it takes for the movie to unfold. I don't know about sympathetic. I'm not sure at any point in this film, I think I'm sympathising with him too much. I agree in that he's able to convey the expression. I think it just almost every time you maybe do start to feel that, you snap yourself out of it because the times of sympathy is like, I do feel bad that you're going to have to kill your brother. I feel for you here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm saying this. I don't totally hate the character, which shows me Pacino's doing something incredible because yeah. you should. Uh, by bringing it close to the present day and digging deeper into its roots, Coppola has come up with a much more definitive explanation of organized crime. There will obviously be no need for a part three. <laughs> which i'm i'm still to watch so i plan to watch that uh maybe sunday this week so yeah maybe should I'll, be done. I'll report back next week with uh mm. with uh real disgust <clears throat> well maybe it'll be really good and it'll be my wild card at the end of this bracket who knows that would be something i thought before we break this down it's important to kind of look at the preparation for the sequel uh, the hype was so great kind of towards the end of filming this that they had already put the wheels in motion for a sequel but it, it obviously wasn't as easy as that Coppola as we got into first time around had effectively been fired several times during the first film being made <laughs> and as a reward for the success of The Godfather, they delivered a Mercedes-Benz limousine to his house, which has got to be nice, I suppose, when you get that knock at the door. But it was essentially kind of twisting his arm, saying, yeah, we, we do kind of want you to come back and direct a sequel now. Let's, let's put everything behind us. <laughs> he, knowing he had them kind of where he wanted them, agreed on several conditions. That the sequel be interconnected with the first film, with the intention of later showing them together, that he be allowed to direct his own scripts of the conversation, 
which he also uh, released then in 1974. So. He'd be allowed to direct a production for the San Francisco Opera. And that he'd be allowed to write the screenplay for The Great Gatsby, all prior to production of the sequel for a Christmas 1974 release. Okay. See, effectively, just was reeling off, and each time they said, yep, he was probably thinking, what else can I add here? <laughs> and I guess when he's gone for The Great Gatsby, eventually that's him running out of ideas. They said, look, Francis, we've got to draw a line somewhere, <laughs> yeah. boss. Um. Coppola's idea for the sequel, he said, would be to juxtapose the ascension of the family under Vito Corleone with the decline of the family under his son, Michael. He says, I'd always wanted to write a screenplay that told the story of a father and a son at the same age. They were both in their 30s and I would integrate the two stories in order to not merely make Godfather 1 over again. I gave Godfather 2 this double structure by extending the story in both the past and the present. Obviously, yeah, pretty, pretty genius, to be fair. Yeah. Given that. Obviously, it was slightly easier first time around in that they just had to decide what they wanted to take over from the book and put in the script. Yeah. This time around, they had a slightly harder thing because obviously this now expands past what you've got in the book. Mm. They didn't completely cut the author out, though. They had him on board. And as I'll get into a bit later, a lot of the decisions they made, they said they wouldn't kind of do anything to any character without him saying whether or not he thought he agreed with it because ultimately yeah. they, they were his characters um only the scenes about the young Vito Corleone have any basis in the book and only one chapter from the book is devoted to Vito's youth and young adulthood so the whole story around Michael and the family in Vegas is just completely unique to the film and that's something they came up with together nice uh, because of the horrible time he had directing The Godfather, he actually asked to pick a different director for the sequel and just take on the role of a producer himself. He recommended Martin Scorsese, who the film executives rejected. Oh. What would a M- Martin Scorsese Godfather 2 look like? Oh. I mean, it would have been sensational, I'm sure, just in a very different way. Yeah. I don't know if he could have captured the same sort of tone. There is a, a natural progression from the first into this one. Yeah. I don't know whether it would have felt just a total shift with Scorsese. I imagine so. I've seen it asked previously what a Coppola directed The Irishman would look like. Mm. Yeah, I do wonder. Um, eventually, after they've then rejected uh, Scorsese, he says, yeah, I'll direct the film if you do these conditions, which we've laid out previously. Marlon Brando was scheduled to return for a cameo in the flashback that you see at the end of the film. Um, But because of the way Paramount treated him, he just didn't show up on the day. (laughs) (laughs) So they had to rewrite it without him. So good. Knowing uh, what we know about him now, he could have just met someone the night before and (laughs) decided it wasn't worth his time. Literally could have been anything with him. Yeah, absolutely insane. The most... uh... Maverick of like Maverick footballers <laughs> who might not turn up to training. We've basically got with them. Uh, De Niro spent four months learning to speak the Sicilian dialect of Italian in order to play Vito Corleone. I think it's eight words of English he has in the film. Yeah, yeah, sensational. It is great when you do see that, the, like the dedication him and Pacino and kind of these other actors of that caliber do go through. 
he's ridiculously good in this as well. I'm sure we'll come on to it, but he's yeah, the only, for one of his best roles, I think. The only time there's been an Oscar given to two different people for the same character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I need that bit. Nice. Uh, something that we touched on, I guess, first time around, the production nearly ended before it began when Al Pacino's lawyers told Coppola that he had grave misgivings with the script and he wasn't turning up. Coppola spent an entire night rewriting it before giving it to Pacino for his review. He then approved it and the production went forward. Pacino's feeling himself. But then... Getting a bit of ego. If the film that we do get is then hailed to this extent, do we perhaps owe Pacino some credit? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to say. A lot more than just the sort of the lead actor then in that case. He probably deserves a fair bit of responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, the only time these are going to be compared recently, there was an interview of Rick Ross, and <laughs> he was asked about his famous verse on "Devil in a New Dress" on "My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy," and he said he stayed up, he wrote a verse, he brought it to Kanye. Kanye effectively said to him, "Like, uh, I think you could do better." And it's, it's the first time anyone had ever, kind of to his face at least, told him what he'd presented wasn't good enough. He goes away produces the verse that he does and it's hailed as one of the best features on the album and of the 2010s so jeez maybe they just need maybe just needed that push yeah it must be it's also not going to be the most outlandish comparison i'll make today but we'll get to that a bit later (laughs) james khan demanded that he be paid the same amount of money to play sonny corleone at the end of the film in the flashback as he was paid to do the first time around the whole film yeah, incredible. He got his wish. <laughs> just mad. You can do that. So good. He's just well, bullied them. Well, we had last time, didn't we? That he was like very offended by the amount they cut out of the script. So much yeah. like Capola, he probably thought, "I've got, I've got you by the throat." Really backed himself. He said, "You know what? I'm throwing my weight around." He's issued the ultimatum on foot manager, and they've actually backed down. Yeah. Do you think? That end scene is better that you don't have Brando in it. I think it has worked out for them as it happens. So overpowering. Yeah, I don't think it would have added much in it. And obviously, I think the whole point probably has to be that Michael's left sat there on his own. Yeah. And by them having to go out and see him, quote unquote, see him because he's not there, uh, that kind of works. It just works really well. Yeah. Do have a, we'll, we'll save a bit about that. We'll talk about that at the end, I guess. Um, yeah, that is a great scene. Funny you yeah. say about the they actually do cough up for James Caan. One yeah. of the issues with the third part is that they don't cough up the money to get Robert Duvall back. And you just yeah. look and think, why would you not just fucking pay it? If you, yeah. Especially if you paid James Caan for this brief scene, why would you not do it? It's yeah, so- I was about to say, so in, in the early version of this script, there was an ongoing storyline with Tom Hagen having an affair with Sonny Corleone's widow. Um, they chucked this out but you do get the line where Michael tells Hagen that he can take his wife, children, and mistress to Las Vegas. And so that's what it was referring to, because there was a whole other storyline there. Right, right. I just figured it was kind of just the done thing that these blokes all just had yeah. a bit on the side. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have that in like The Sopranos, don't you? Or anyone that doesn't, they kind of look at them like, what? What do you mean? It's kind of like a, like a Tudor king, isn't it? Like if he wasn't shagging <laughs> someone else, they'd be like, well, what the hell are you doing? You're doing it wrong. And then they they tell the wives that you should be complimented. I'm coming back to you at the end of the day. <laughs> They'll do this classic. Well, look, I'm putting food on this table. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. You carry on doing what you want then. 
I'm busting my ass. <laughs> uh, in terms of real life influence, uh, Hyman Roth's character is loosely based on Maya Lansky. Yep. Lansky says he, he was slightly offended when the film came out. He, <laughs> he, he phoned Lee Strasberg and said, could you not have made me more sim- sympathetic? I'm a grandfather now. <laughs> uh, that's the thing with my Lansky. People do not talk about <laughs> his his grandchildren enough and his relationship with them. They focus on the other stuff. I, I do love it, and I know you're not too far into The Sopranos, but they reference it a lot in that, that the impression you get is that all these mobsters were completely dialed in and really looking forward to the release of any one of these films after they got over the initial hump um, <laughs> to the point where they're still like referencing it in their daily lives and like he's phoning up joking knowing that he's essentially been ripped off it must be some level of buzz I guess mustn't it yeah. <laughs> um, originally the actors in the flashback scenes all wore trousers with zips one of the musicians near the end of filming pointed out that zips hadn't actually been invented at this time. And so Coppola went back and had to reshoot all of those scenes where you could see a zip in shot. Oh, wow. Which You'd be fuming. One, I admire the fact that he does have that level of dedication, but the majority of the time, even if the zip's done up on your trousers, like you don't really see it. Like You've got that little bit that kind of goes over the zip, so I mean... I don't know if they were just walking around like John Wayne, like with their legs spread apart. <laughs> I was going to say, off. was someone flying low? Does that give it away? It must also, have done, a, bit, because... a bit concerning that a musician had to point it out. Yeah, yeah. There's people on there who should have been on this, <laughs> and he's had to point it out. That's one of them where you're probably waiting out like, do I say something? He, he's he waited like four days and be like, no, no, I've got to say something. I've got to say something. Yeah, and someone's definitely like flipped their lid when they've been told. And he's like, oh, I just thought it was worth me saying. You can Why did you say this? <laughs> um, okay, some changes to the film then before we kind of go through it. So a test screening of the film brought really negative reactions. And this happened for the first few tests to the point where the buzz around the film had been greatly diminished by the time it came out. What we see with the flashbacks and flash forwards are these kind of long pieces where you spend a lot of time with each character before it switches back. This was far more kind of cross cut quickly. So you are having these broken down far more and you're going back and forth, back and forth. And the audiences hated that. They said it was too confusing and it just kind of bothered them that they could never really get into one storyline without it chopping back to the other. So the studio kind of got spooked and told him to decrease the frequency of the transitions in order to make the parallel storylines easier to follow, which ultimately does turn out to be a good call, I guess, because people still say it's confusing now. I was going to say, there's, there's some people who still find it a bit confusing, so if they had more of them, they would have been all at sea. Particularly yeah. at the time period, with all due respect, we've had since a lot more flashback films in the meantime between yeah. 1974 and now. I don't know how you feel about it i wouldn't say it's confusing um because ultimately it's this is the young guy you saw in the first film and this is the guy you've been following from the last film but it does certainly make it harder to follow and i think part of this is uh they don't hold your hand with this at all 
No. And so even with some of the biggest reveals in the film that we'll get to, they don't do what you'd get now. And even if it's not kind of hot tub time machine, I'm saying hot tub time <laughs> machine down the camera. It's sometimes the most subtle bit of dialogue. And as filmmakers, they trust you. You've been tuned in enough to pick up on this and then work it out for yourself. Whereas I guess for some people, well, I guess a lot of people's attention is going to waver at some point during three hours and 22 minutes. And maybe that's just why people say it's so confusing. Yeah, I think that might be the sheer length of time. Maybe people concentration goes up and down. It's a tricky one. I've seen this film now so many times that I can't really remember a stage where I wouldn't have got it, if you see what I mean. Yeah, because I previously, if I heard someone say they may perhaps don't understand the film and it wasn't something like Tenet, which is like they're saying they purposely tried to confuse you and it's sort of just what the hell are you doing? Um, until I watched Game <laughs> of Thrones and that wasn't confusing, but I would have someone try and like bring up the name of a character and like four seasons in, I still need to be watching it in front of me to be able to quote, okay, that's his name, that's his name. And so I guess whenever it was not called Jack, Jeff, Dave, and it is far more split. Like some of these characters we're only seeing for five minutes across the across the duration, but sure. they're being referred to throughout. Mm. I can see how you could kind of lose your way in it, but I don't think it's uh, as as complex as some people would kind of uh, like to tell you. No, no, I don't think so. Um, Danny Aiello's line, Michael Corleone says hello was completely ad-libbed. Uh, the director loved it and ba- and asked him to do it again in the retakes. <laughs> nice. I know, and I'm going to check. It's maybe him, actually. Okay, yeah, so the story with this line. You only got paid as an extra in this film if you said a line. And so you so, need to pay day. Yeah, and so he effectively <laughs> was like, how can I work this out? And there is another podcast where he explains it, but it's, it's very long. Uh, so I just saw the quotes. But should we on this yeah. basis, every extra is going to be trying to chip in something. Here. Yeah, you I can imagine be absolutely getting very it. irritated. Yeah. There's someone else that does it. Um, when uh, a young Vito is walking down the street just after um, he's taken out Fanucci, someone, someone says something to him and... Apparently, Coppola was quite irritated. I guess maybe we've been having this a lot. And De Niro had to tell him that he actually thought it added a lot to the scene because it did show that, for one, he was known around the neighbourhood and two, people respected him for the fact they were going out of their way to do that. So it kind of juxtaposed the start of the film when he's walking down carrying a rug and no one's even batting an eyelid. <laughs> so it kind of shows his status. I would have quite liked if uh, Coppola had gone you haven't looked at the small print it's only if you say something in english you get paid <laughs> so sorry you, you don't get paid sorry mate um yeah lee, lee strasberg became ill during shooting uh he's playing hyman roth but instead of delaying the production his character was just rewritten to be a kind of ailing old man during the later scenes so they made it work they didn't want to lose him he's been dying of the same heart attack for 20 years yep <laughs> Uh, originally Kay was to truly have a miscarriage but it was Talia Shire's idea that she would have an abortion instead she said it was the ultimate way to hurt Michael and so to thank her for this idea 
Capola gave her an extra scene, and that's the one where she's kind of tearfully asking Michael to forgive Fredo. It's a good scene, I worked out. Yeah. That is his sister as well, if I'm not mistaken, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, so rewarding her, she's your sister. There was a lot of debate over whether De Niro should grow a moustache for the scenes where uh, (laughs) young Vito is a few years older. Uh, De Niro couldn't decide, so in the end he uh, tossed a coin. And then for the scenes where he returns to Sicily, he even gained weight and wore a smaller version of the dental appliance that Brando wore in the first film, just to accentuate it. Nice, Keenan nice messaged me while he was watching and said, I really think you need a moustache like a, a young Vito. He <laughs> said, I think you've got it in you. And I'm yep. thinking, I, I, I don't know if I, I mean, I'd love to have a moustache like that. I feel I would <laughs> carry a lot more power just as I walk down the street. <laughs> but at this point, I do still need a bit of chin fluff to uh, well cover my chin. So <laughs> no moustache yeah, just yet. Final bits of kind of other trivia. In an interview, Gordon Willis admitted that he sometimes went too far in his use of dark photography. <laughs> he particularly noted the yeah, scene in which Michael speaks to his mum for advice as an example. So when they restored it in 2008, they actually got him on board because they said the restoration experts wanted to know just how he intended the scenes to be shown. Nice. And I often ask Keenan to predict these things. In the three-hour, 22-minute duration, how long do you think the screen time is for Robert De Niro? Um, hour 20? 46 minutes. Blimey. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that. Oh. What the hell? Makes the I most thought, of it. Yeah, yeah. You, obviously, you know, in, in your mind, you think there's more of a split towards yeah, uh, yeah. Michael's, Michael's story, but it still feels like a, a slightly more equal split than that. Jeez. Yeah, there we go. Um, before we go into the split, do, do you like the back and forth? Do you think it works? Do you like it? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it works incredibly. Um, maybe having at least maybe two watches of the film would maybe sort of change that. Maybe the first time you ever watch it, maybe that would throw you a bit. It's such a distant memory for me now, I'm not sure. But uh, I think I think it works incredibly well. It's a perfect sort of juxtaposition, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, I think once I knew the majority of kind of what was happening this time around, like mm. I actually forgot the abortion part. So that bit for the second time did oh, catch wow. me off guard. Oh, incredible. <laughs> Uh, it's like I was watching a Jeremy Kyle episode, <laughs> Jerry Springer. Um, but the rest, I kind of felt like I knew Fredo was the traitor and th- this and that. So you do have a, certainly a, a, an appreciation for the different scenes each time. If Rocco comes was... back in with a DNA test. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if this was done today, how certain are you that we just get a prequel veto film and this is just straight Michael for the second uh yeah yeah pretty sure yeah you're absolutely i mean if they haven't covered anything with Vito, then that is an absolute guarantee they're doing the, a prequel aren't they based around him solely may even get a tv show <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i mean the whole thing's probably a tv show isn't it rather than than a film yeah the, i think the day we released our godfather one podcast they dropped the trailer for that show about the making of the godfather right it looks so bad <laughs> it's a shame to see Miles Teller going out like that. 
Although, from what our friend said about yeah. it, maybe it's karmic balance. He he's just gone on um, Zach, the one from the latest Jackass film. He's just gone on his podcast, by the way. But haven't watched yet to see if he's shouted us out. Um, I'm assuming he has. But, I think that's a given, isn't it? I think anything yeah, he goes on, exactly. I think that's going to happen. Um, so yeah, don't even need to watch it to find out. We'll just assume. <laughs> if retweet him, be like, oh, look out for the shout out for us on here. If we split it then, so we'll start with Michael's section and then go through vetoes, unless you want to do the other way around. Uh, Michael's feels more significant. Yeah, we'll start with Michael. So I've kind of broken down the plot and I guess some scenes we'll go into with more detail than others. Um, right at the start of the film, 1958, we're at his son's first communion party at Lake Tahoe. And Michael has a series of meetings in his role as the Don of the Corleone crime family. They're kind of just juxtaposing the wedding from the first film, aren't they? With the meetings that he's having there. It's a nice way to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the comparisons are laid out straight away, aren't they? Um, In terms of obviously he's having to go off to meetings. He ends up apologising to Kay because he's not seen most of the day, not seen his kids or her. Um, having to do these shifty meetings while something fairly uh, happy is supposed to be happening behind the scenes. Obviously, something very dark is going on. Yeah. But also, it's, it's a totally different, from the jump, as this film is compared to the first, a different feel, isn't it? I think it's uh, sort of colder, more business-like straight away. You don't have the warmth of like a wedding, I don't think, by comparison no, to this. But you do still have um, the kind of darkly lit room uh, and there's a shot mm. at the end of this, just before the titles kind of come up to show you the Godfather Part Two, where they show a shot of like just an empty chair in that office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to show that he's not kind of fully taken over the role, or he's not fully uh, kind of embraced the role of being the Don yet. Um, I thought right from the jump, if we go into to the meeting he has with the senator, mm. just the fact that the senator even speaks to him like that does show you that he's still got some way to go to kind of being the kind of leader that his dad was in the first film. Yeah, you you are right. On the flip side, though, what the hell is this senator thinking? Yeah. <laughs> like, what is you, you're just watching this guy say these things. Like, what are you doing? He feels like a, a sort of weird like precursor to George Bush. <laughs> You're sort of like, this guy's got somewhere, but I'm not entirely sure how. What the hell is he doing? Yeah, it, I was I was watching this and I went back and watched uh, this scene again today where you've got the uh, senator. You can have my answer now if you like. Oh. My final offer is this. Nothing. So good. I'm amazed in a time when well, I've seen it for just about everything else. I've not seen an edit of this where some sunglasses drop onto his face. Still Dre starts playing in the background. <laughs> because I'm also amazed we haven't had it under like a, in a football thing when they say like, I don't know, like X player. Like what's this <laughs> yeah. amount for X players? Like my offer is nothing. <laughs> nothing. But even just adding to that, not even the fee for the gaming license, which I would appreciate if you would put up personally. So good. Flipping it on him. Yeah, there's so many cold lines in this scene. Uh, we're both part of the same hypocrisy, Senator, but never think it applies to my family. 
oh, he's um, he's genuinely uh, like kind of terrifying at this point as well already. Michael, I think I think he has a presence already there that is just totally different from that first film. By the end, he's obviously becoming that, but he's I think switched gear already, and the, the way he's staring at that center, I think you like, Jesus Christ, I would be my ass would have gone a long time ago. Yeah. What 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 I took from that was one that he felt disrespected as he should there, and that I don't think he feels that someone should be able to speak to him like that. And even worse, I guess, because the senator has tried to stick it on him, doesn't he? Where he says, "Are you sure you don't want them to leave?" Because the way I'm going to speak to you, no one else has ever spoken to you like this before. Hmm. And so the fact that they're able to do that, and two, I guess, for what we see in the film and the way he goes, he wants to be in a position where nobody even feels that they can dream of speaking to him like that. And so that look at the end, I think, is almost a look of, like, that. that's never going to happen to me again. Yeah, yeah, you are right. It's um, definitely a moment for him where he says, this isn't going to be repeated. But I do also think it's just he's playing chess and the Senate is playing checkers just in yeah. that if you look at, obviously there's not that long after this in the film, Michael has a series of one-on-one meetings with people where like, say like him and the Roth are operating on a different level where they both yeah. know they're trying to sort of outmaneuver each other. Whereas here, the Senate is just kind of doing it in black and white. And he's got to realize that, that one way or another, Michael, is not going to be putting up with this from you? I think that's the real joy with watching a film like this for the second time or third or fourth or whatever. And, we compared it to or we were going to do Gone Girl later in this bracket. We've done Den mm. of Thieves and just that kind of one where you're in on the plan the second time around. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you get a newfound appreciation for particularly in the scene that we're going to come on to in a second where it's almost like watching poker on TV and then you can see their hands this time. And mm. so, you know, when you're, they're reeling someone in. Yeah. And so when you see this and you know, ultimately what's going to happen to this guy, you just have a new level of appreciation because perhaps if you do think he's getting the better of Michael the first time around, the second time around, you know that's not the case. Mm. We do have the party again. And I think with what you said, the mood's obviously different. Um, The first time around, even with the meeting, the guy is kind of trembling at the feet of the Don and begging for a favour from him. Mm. Whereas this time around, the guy is saying, look, I'll do you a favour here but it's going to cost you. And even with the wedding, as you said there, very happy. And we said, it looks like one of the happiest times you've ever seen on film. We'd love to be a part of it. (laughs) This time around, the thing I think of with this scene is uh, Fredo not being able to control his wife. Bit depressing, isn't it? (laughs) Where Michael sends uh, someone over and they said, look, Michael's told me if you don't take care of this, I'm going to have to. And Fredo's like... Yeah, you take care. He says, I can't yeah. control her, Michael. I can't control her. It just feels so pathetic, doesn't it? But you're, you're kind of pitying. It reminded me of In Jersey Shore <laughs> when Snooky makes Gianni run away in Italy when she's lifting her dress up in the club. And then he has to take action, but he just runs away from the situation as well. And Fredo essentially does say, look, I'm not dealing with that. I've not got that in me. And she mentions in that scene about him being scared of his little brother, which I then guess carries on for the rest of the film. Yeah. 
it's a rough one for him because he obviously he threatens to hit her and then she yeah. mugs him off saying you can hit your own yeah. mother or something and you're like yeah. oh god this is I like don't know why that why that is uh, kind yeah. of a drawing board <laughs> yeah I don't know why that's the measuring stick or something if he could beat up his mum maybe he could have himself next title fight we see in boxing and the trash talk is you couldn't hit me you couldn't even hit your mum <laughs> And everyone in the crowd's like, wow, he's done him. He's t- I can't believe this. <laughs> Even with what we've said about the mood here, it still does look like a pretty decent place to go. You've got a good spread on there. You've got a nice little dance floor in the middle. But do you have a good spread on? Pentangeli's telling us the spread's fucking dreadful. Look, he probably is a man that does know a good spread, but I guess when you've been to weddings like in the first film, your standards are probably far higher than ours are. <laughs> The other, the other thing with him, apart from the fact that his introduction is great, drinking from that fucking hose, and then, <laughs> Fredo, Fredo, you son of a... Um, he's also obviously a pretty blatant sort of thing where he's trying to pull it back to traditional Sicilian values. Yeah. And they're becoming more and more Americanized. Obviously, the most blatant version of that is when they can't play the Italian music and they end up playing... What do they play? Hokey Koki or something stupid. And, and it's... So, by contrast, obviously, the wedding in the first one where they're all up and dancing to the Italian yeah. music, they can't even play it in this one. And that's how this family is obviously progressively just going away from those traditional values and becoming more and more Americanized and kind of losing their soul, I guess. The guy they got up on the mic to sing in the first one, do we think he made it to the second film? He looked like he may have been on his last legs at that point already. <laughs> it's only, what, two years? Well, I feel like no matter what your thoughts are on the music, like if that's gone down a storm the first time around, the mood's a little tetchy here. You draw for him, you get him back up on the mic. I assume he's not charging a fee either. So he's (laughs) he's easy entertainment, get the mood back going. He's the go-to. Look, the plan's not worked. We go back to the plan A, get him back on. You've got him emceeing the event. Um, Johnny Fontaine shits out. He, he could do anything <laughs> for him. Oh. If we do talk about the the kind of Pentangeli versus the Rosatos that we see starting off, we see Frank, Corleone Capo, coming to Michael, and he's essentially asking for help to defend his territory against the Rosato brothers who work for Hyman Roth. And it's another one of these things, isn't it, where Michael has a choice between whether he takes a stand or whether he does what's probably best for business. Something I picked up on in in this scene, and it may just be Pacino. I thought Michael isn't even smoking with any real conviction in this scene. (laughs) I I, I was looking at him and I I may have just been reading too much into it. it. I thought it looked like he was almost playing a part in this scenario. And I don't know because I assume maybe what you're supposed to take away from this film is it's Michael growing deeper and deeper into the role, I guess, also where the role kind of consumes him by the end of the film. And I just thought at the start of this, maybe they were trying to paint it as though he's maybe trying to imitate his dad too much or isn't quite comfortable with all of this yet. Because yeah, it was just the way, usually in a scene like this, it would be a big cigar they're having and they're taking the deepest puff in that you're ever going to see just to prove like, I've got the biggest lungs in this place and this I'm the Don and all of this and he is like barely even smoking on it 
like he doesn't really want to be doing that but it may have just been Pacino if they're doing like 100 takes his lungs are probably fucked at that point and he just doesn't want any more yeah they don't look like fakes either they do look like he's actually yeah. doing it so uh, yeah I don't know because he does he works his way through some cigarettes in this film he's rattling them off maybe he sort of grows with conviction throughout the film in that respect <laughs> I don't know he just takes to the nicotine more as the film goes on he was just getting his sea legs <laughs> it was just looking it out um, so do you think this is almost reminiscent of the I'll ask you to do a favour for me scene in that he does have to make the decision he holds all the power in this situation and I guess he calls back on it at the end and I don't know if you call that a game of chess at this point but I don't know how you read this scene is it Michael already from the start putting his chips in place is he assuming that he needs to get point A here, point B here, or I don't know how you read it. I think you're seeing that he's essentially nothing is going to get ahead of like the bigger scheme for him. Nothing's going to get ahead of this, the grand plan. And someone a bit more short-sighted would probably just help Frankie out. But he realises that, look, I can not help this guy out and put him in his place and sort of get my sort of wider aims before I need to just do that. Most people would probably just acquiesce and, and give him what he wanted. And the fact that he's able to do that probably tells us something about Michael, but then Pentangeli's response, again, to link back to something you said earlier, that they probably don't fully respect him yet. They've got the respect for them and that, that they're not coming for him. But he is still kicking up a fuss, obviously shouting the odds, does walk out in a huff. And if you, the first time you watch the film, and then not long after this, we see a, uh, an attempted hit on Michael. Yep, yep. You're probably going to be thinking, well, look, he's going to be one of the chief suspects that has been behind this because he's super pissed off. Yeah, because we see that. And I do think in this film, even with the additional runtime, maybe it's just because it's more spaced out, the violence seems far more... Um, I don't, saying it's more thought out, sounds as if you're throwing shade at the first film but it feels even more like there isn't one more bit of violence in the film than there needed to be and so every time you do see a moment like that it does really hit harder because you do have the gaps in between this time and so it's not so much out of nowhere because you know what kind of film you're going in for but this moment particularly the fact it's in their home what's he just seen his kids and then he's getting into bed it just seems a bit more unnerving than anything you see that's kind of far more in your face in the first film it's earlier in the film than i remember as well every time i watch it i think well that happened a bit earlier than i thought the uh obviously the shooting at the house um and in that respect it's straight down to business quicker than the first one wasn't it we don't have really as much of a bedding in process we've got yeah. violence pretty early on um that whole thing's great, by the way. The fact that it's been referenced a thousand times. The fact that Kay's gone to bed and then noticed that the curtains are still open. Yeah. <laughs> Just staggering. Um, in this as well, I don't know if you may be able to reference something from the first film that I'm missing, but no act of violence against the family takes place kind of at their own home. I guess the closest you'd have is the car blowing up on Michael when whether you call that his home or not would kind of work to what you say about this point this feels like 
anyone that's been hit previously. So uh, Vito gets hit on the street when he's doing the shopping. Uh, Sonny's hit when he's kind of driving through uh, the tolls. And so for this to happen in his own house, it's like the walls are kind of closing in. Sure. And then there's that spell. And they're obviously in the room afterwards. Kay sort of comforting the kids and she doesn't even look at Michael. Yeah. I think there is a, a thing of you've brought this to our doorstep, really. In She's a way completely that we haven't fair. seen before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once again, we've got the old uh, the old Skylar White thing. We feel like every single criticism you have of this man is absolutely spot on. And yet we're still running with him. I'm not entirely sure why, but we are. Oh, because at the same time and we can She's not as annoying as Skylar, I should add. No, and we can perhaps have a deeper conversation on Kay, maybe when we get into the uh, abortion scene, is that hmm. this isn't one where you had a kid with him and then you found out what an awful <laughs> no, guy he was. No, like, no. It was literally laid out on what we he believe was one of you. your first dates. He was pretty honest about it, to be fair. And him saying, look, I'm going to go legitimate eventually, is like when the woman's been cheated on for the sixth time and they're saying, like, I promise you, I do really love you and I'm going to change. At what, at what point is it your fault? Yeah. For now, for now, believing this every time. If Kay is still believing this six, eight, ten years down the line, maybe have a little look closer to home. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't even call her naive or faux naive. She's just, she's been made aware of everything, and she still dived in head first. Yeah. No excuses. Um. From that, then we do see Michael go to meet Roth, and. I think you view this scene differently the first time you watch it and the second time you watch it because you do then know who is behind this uh, assassination attempt. True. This I is, think... Sorry, sorry. I was going to say, this This is just so good. Just the appreciation for hmm. both of them there. The dialogue is brilliant when you do kind of see the motive gradually come out of Roth. This is a, a Liverpool Man City game being played out in two characters there where you're like these guys are on a different level to other people we've witnessed in these films and there's some sort of like not it's obviously it's passive aggressive constantly but there's there's moving pieces throughout this where you're like okay they're both trying to maneuver each other and i think even if uh the first time you watch this and you don't know what the outcome is i think you know that okay these these guys are feeling each other out here uh yeah it's it's brilliant It's, it's a great scene We've also had Roth mentioned a few times prior to this meeting to kind of build up that kind of boogeyman effect. Uh, mm. So when we do go and see him, and it is this old man in a home, it's maybe even scarier at that point because you do know what a powerful guy this guy is, even if he doesn't look that way. Agree. Yeah, you've touched on that where uh, Pentangeli obviously in particular isn't happy with him. He says. Your father did business with Hyman Roth. Your father respected Hyman Roth, but your father never trusted Hyman Roth. And so from the jump, you're sort of thinking, right, I'm wary of this guy. And you're thinking, what's Mike getting himself into? Does he, you know, is he being taken advantage of here? And obviously, in, in reality, he's got all the cards. Yeah. So later on, he had an idea to build a city out of a desert, a uh, desert stopover. The geese on the way to West Coast. That kid's name was Mo Green, and the city invented was Las Vegas. This was a great man, a man of vision and guts, and there isn't even a plaque or a signpost or a statue of him in that town. Someone put a bullet through his eye, 
No one knows who gave the order. When I heard it, I wasn't angry. I knew Mo. I knew he was headstrong, talking loud, saying stupid things. So when he turned up dead, I let it go. And I said to myself, this is the business we've chosen. I didn't ask who gave the order because it had nothing to do with business. And you just, it's like the cover's blown for a second. I was going to say, because that's where it's gone from passive aggression to outright. That's as good as an accusation, isn't it? Because there's no other reason for him to bring that up. He is no. saying, look, I know you did this. He was my boy, but I'll pull it aside. So, again, it's sort of leveraging. It's kind of like, well, I've done that, so you owe me one, which doesn't really add up. But in his mind, that's probably how it works. Ross thinking, if I know Mo, he's called someone else out for banging two cocktail waitresses at a time. <laughs> there were people that they couldn't even be served at the tables. <laughs> Players couldn't get a drink. <laughs> uh I'm going to take a nap. When I wake, if the money's on the table, I'll know I have a partner. If it isn't, I'll know I don't. Genius. And because we have, do we have his meeting with um, Pentangeli again is pretty soon after this, isn't it? Where we've seen him end this by asking for permission to kill Pentangeli, to get him on side and say, oh, look, me and you, we're on level terms here. And then you have the meeting after where Michael is then asking him to maintain his pretense by making peace with the Rosatos. Michael's playing they then tried to kill him before it was a term, isn't he? He's yeah. playing with these guys. Yeah. He's basically said to Frankie that I know it was Hyman Roth who tried to kill me. He said to Hyman Roth, I know it was Pentangi that tried to kill me. And all the while, he's just playing them. When when the Rosatos do try to kill Pentangeli, <laughs> this is this is so bad. Like the policeman walks in, and they couldn't have been more baits if they tried. <laughs> this this is like a policeman walking through an airport, and all the smugglers just emptying their pockets. They go, look, you got me, and then just <laughs> legging it. <laughs> all he sees is a pair. All he sees is a pair of shoes. Yeah, like, even if they're going to do something and it's not beyond their realms, they could have just capped the policeman in the back of the head. Like, there's two of them behind him. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a remarkably bad hit. <laughs> they he's just old... go cops and robbers. <laughs> he's an old guy anyway. It shouldn't be that hard for them. They fucked that up. Spectacularly bad timing with a cop and bad luck that they seem to have one of the few honest cops that are involved in this who actually goes into this bar to resolve the matter. Because most in this film would just carry on. <laughs> most cops are going, nah, I'm not, I'm not, I know about these guys. I'm not bothering going there. It's, it just seems so alien for anything we see for any of these mobsters across any of the two films so far that their answer to this situation would, one, to not kill Pentangeli before they run away, and two, to just turn into a runner like they cherry knocked someone. also the the most on the nose thing ever of obviously if you order a hit the person is instantly going to go this is from michael corleone there's nothing weird (laughs) about that at all there's no idea (laughs) pentangeli just entirely goes for it oh well he obviously tried to have me killed that must be it that being said if hypothetically you were going to get someone killed if the hitman says, do you want it silent or do you want me to say, TK sends his regards? 
<laughs> Which you're not going for the silent one, are you? No, it's true. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but if I was being stitched up, I imagine they would also do something along those lines. Shoot, sends his regards. <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah. By the way, the Rosato brothers, if we're being super critical, maybe some of the most forgettable characters across these two films. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately pretty irrelevant for all they've just been built up by Pentan and Julie. Yeah, how have they garnered this reputation? Yeah, yeah, it's really... They're squeezing Frankie. You're like, they really... They can't kill you. I don't really know what they can do. They seem a bit they, pathetic. They've paid him to just, like, run up their name, like Finch in American Pie 1. <laughs> He's got Jessica around the streets saying, these Rosato brothers, you do not... You do not want to go to war with them. I've got a theory. That's what Fredo did with Mo Green. Like, <laughs> you just go tell everyone that I'm shagging these girls on the uh, cocktail table. Just tell everyone because at the minute everyone thinks I'm a loser. If if Mane was offered Fredo's hairline, does he take it? For sure. Yeah, hundred percent he does. <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> I think it's a couple of inches forward on Mane. I think so. I think he takes what he can get. I think if Mane got a hair transplant, that's like what he gets. Like other people have his, have theirs restored. He gets like just a few inches brought forwards. Do you think like they'd get him to the seat in like Turkey and the guy would be like, look, this is beyond <laughs> my work. I mean, look, I've done a lot of things. I can't deal with this. Get him out of here. You've got to pay double for this. Always maintain though. If Mane shaved it all off, I'd be super freaked out. Super freaked out. He's got to well, keep it. Yeah, like people said... Uh, they were weirded out by Javinho seemingly like doing curtains, and then they saw him with his hair pulled back and a walk. Get it back on, get it back yeah. on. <laughs> so, total I, flip I saw... side, Martin Skirtle actually growing hair through everyone yeah. else. Like, Whoa, yeah. what is this? I saw a TikTok the other day where someone was clearly bored enough that they gave Mane a shape up, <laughs> and it, it looks so weird. Like, it looked better how it is now. He's pulling it off. I think he's he's happy. Let's take this to Cuba. So mm. Roth, Michael, and several of the partners travel to Havana to discuss their kind of future Cuban business prospects. Um, Michael is reluctant to continue operating uh, after reconsidering kind of the revolution going on. Doesn't seem unfair, Matt. No. They're kind of pictures, oh, no, don't worry, this will be fine. Like, I'm not sure it will be fine. I think that's a terrible idea. And it's actually not fine, as it turns out. So I was trying to remember the placement of the scene. Is it before this where Michael has his conversation with Tom Hagen, where he basically tells him, this is why I've not been including you in any of the business? No, no. I think that's, um, that's later on. Okay. He does have a meeting with Johnny Olo where he tells Tom to get out, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, he doesn't. He inadvertently goes, Tom won't be staying. And he's like, you know, on your way then. I was Which, trying uh, to place it. Yeah, yeah, so that felt like a power play from the jump. And you're thinking, oh, this is a bit of an uneasy sort of situation. And then later on, when he's saying, uh, it's when he's going away from the, the home. And he's going, look, you're the only one I can trust. That's why I've kept you away from me, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um. So uh, I'm just trying to think of where we talk about. So you'll have to tell us when we talk about that scene. So I've got a few things about that. Yeah. Um, so 
yeah, Michael manages this perfectly because he's got this kind of two million dangled underneath Hyman Roth. He's kept him on him on strings. He calls Fredo out with the money, doesn't he? He tells Fredo he needs to bring the money. Yep. And so he's got all of these chips, and I seem to have written down every quote except for the one uh, I was thinking of. But can you remember the quote that Michael says where he's pointing out about the revolution, and it's like that they could win. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so it's so good when he says it, and then he gets pulled to the side, doesn't he, and says like. I don't want to have this conversation. Can we not have this conversation more privately? Yeah, which is also the wildest thing because he says it, everyone hears it, and then I Ross, do you want to just come over here? It's not, but it's out here now. What, what do you he mean? Says, There's no point. I saw a strange thing today. Some rebels were being arrested. One of them pulled the pin on a grenade. He took himself and the captain of the command with him. Now soldiers are paid to fight. The rebels aren't. He says, what does that tell you? They could win. Because even the look from Michael when he sees this kind of trouble happening, he doesn't look particularly moved by it at all. And I guess this all just adds into the fact that he is now just <laughs> this unflinching, yeah, ice-stained yeah. killer. It's entirely right. How is this going to affect this business? It's not, oh shit, someone's just been killed in front of me. And he just goes on like, his, his biggest issue is that like, this this... What do you think to the birthday cake? Nice bit of cake? Yeah. Uh, It's one of the things with any kind of mob film is that for all of the shenanigans they do get up to, they do still seem to have high standards when it comes to their cuisine. (laughs) As a rule. Yeah, I mean, maybe the business is so tough that like you do just need to be charmed at the end of the day with a good spread. (laughs) Also, I think we start treating um, any in-person pods or anything like that we start, uh, we have a golden telephone that we pass around from now on, okay? And we feel the weight of it like they do. So, oof, that's heavy, isn't it? I thought you were about to have to put a spread on every time we do That time would we do it in person. We have birthday cake every time. Sorry. So, I mean, considering a prerequisite now. If we do it in my room, it would stink if you came in. I've just got deli meat just spread, <laughs> just spread, just spread out like across the wall as you get in. And you have to give us a Hyman Ross-style speech about health, most important thing, that's <laughs> most important thing. You got your health. I mean, it does it does make me want to go to Subway now and get some get some deli meats. <laughs> Saw a video of um Joey Diaz just ranting about Subway the other day about how shit it is compared to uh all of the delis that you have in like Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Um it does seem outrageous that you would go to a subway if you had yeah, that on offer. His co host says like oh, I went to Subway earlier and he's like Why'd you why'd you try to upset me like this? <laughs> in Cuba, then, so we've got Fredo kind of doing his uh, Fredo business. He's taking them all out for a good time. By the way, you trust him with two million pounds in a briefcase? No, but I no, well, there's not a chance. Your your reading of this is it? Do you read it that he at least has a hunch? that it's Fredo and he's effectively giving him the rope to hang himself. Like he needs, he doesn't want to believe it. He needs to see it for himself. And so that's why, because him kind of forgetting to bring the money seems very out of character for everything that he's done previously in the film. I think that's entirely it, isn't it? Um, the first few times I watched the film, I didn't really think about it. And I thought, yeah, that's obviously, that's obviously what he's looking at. He's certainly looking to bring Fredo over 
Yeah. And I can't think it would be for any other reason other than to ascertain if he screwed him or not. I do think this does, you know, we're going to come on to Fredo taking them out. Yeah. I do think, obviously, he's going to have a shocked reaction to it, but it does, see whether it's just because that's confirmation or what, and it's obviously yeah. blatant from Fredo, by the way, the height of stupidity. Yeah. But I do think even when they um, are having those drinks for the, the, the uh, banana daiquiri bit, yeah, I think there and then, I think in reality, Michael would be like this. I mean, he must be very suspicious if he's not. He doesn't show it, but you would think he must be because Fredo at one point goes, I was mad at you. Why couldn't we do something like this before? And I think yeah, he's yeah. almost about to confess to something here. And Michael doesn't really press him, which I think is an interesting well, the, angle. He, I watched that back today, um, mm. and I think that's actually one of the most telling scenes in the film. In that, there's a shot of it's Mike a great scene after he says that, and he looks at him, and it's a look um, like this guy, like he's looking down on him. <laughs> like, and I guess the reason that they've never done something like that before is that Michael doesn't consider him as equal. Um, no. Michael never has considered him as equal. His main issue is that he doesn't feel it's right that anyone else can look down on Fredo. And he's almost been embarrassed when people have done that previously. Yeah, but you know, up until the the idea that he's betrayed him, he does still love him as a brother. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's a warm character as well. Very easy to like. You just wouldn't necessarily want him like working with you or whatever because he's a total liability. Yeah, this this whole thing, Michael has just managed excellently. Uh, in just mentioning the money, he's bought himself some time until he puts the hit on Roth because. He's effectively safe knowing that Roth isn't going to make a hit on him until after he's handed over the money. And the more he delays it, the more he can kind of work things out for himself and ensure he's got everything spot on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a master stroke. And then <laughs> this night out that Fredo takes them on, I know they've got <laughs> quite the mix of people there. Uh, at what stage do you... I know what the boys are going to love this evening. <laughs> because <laughs> he takes them out and it's almost like a cabaret performance at first and yeah. then at the point where I see this film's in the 70s and I was trying to think okay is there anything else that this could possibly kind of uh, in, <laughs> like inferring in this scene like, I don't yeah. know. could this Am be I leading anywhere that I don't think it is and then when Fredo <laughs> that ain't fake that's real that's why they call him Superman I'm like no no <laughs> This is completely spot on. Fredo <laughs> has brought them all here to go, look at the length on that. <laughs> that was a real guy, by the way. <laughs> That's a real thing. They um, In Cuba, they, there was a freakish guy that used to go and watch that sort of performance. That's based on a real uh, real thing. What? Is he, is he just pipe the woman on stage like you'd see in Amsterdam? Yeah, yeah. I think it was like a... I think he was known as like the Superman of Havana or whatever. He was like a local sort of a kind of celebrity. And that was the that was the thing, yeah. People were like, "Oh my god, this is freakish." It's kind of a freak show, but yeah. How how do you gain that reputation to the point, to the point where someone says like, "Incredible, isn't it?" You know, I might have the job for you. <laughs> I think it's also one of those things as well where like, uh, it can't be big enough that it would probably shock you. You'd probably be thinking this is just going to be like off the scale, and you're probably just going to go, "Oh, well, it's quite large." But it's, you know, I've I've paid ten pound entry. What's going on? I was I was going to ask. I don't really know there's a good outcome. I don't think there's a. What can you possibly see from that performance? Yeah, go on. I was going to ask Keenan this, and he's not here to do so, so I'll have to ask you. Um, Oh, no. If you could put yourself in Fredo's shoes, 
it's about three o'clock in the afternoon on this day and you're having to tell this group of people the night out that you're taking them on. Mm-hmm. How do you sell this? Uh... <laughs> like, do you keep it quiet and it's like you just kind of sneak this in? Like, I think so. <laughs> I think you're getting them, uh, you're getting them nice and pissed early on, and then at that point, sort of anything goes. You get to that stage of the night where you think, let's do something a bit risky, and that's all. You, that's all you got to do. You just got to hope that they're a game bunch. And let's face it, that senator fucking is. So he's not going <laughs> to take much persuading. But, it's really only your brother that you're going to have trouble. But like, if 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 we went on a night out somewhere I'd never been before, and you were like, "I've got a good place for us to go tonight," even if for <laughs> the next eight hours, and I'm better on myself here that uh, I'm still standing at this point, <laughs> you get me absolutely battered, and you say, "Oh, you're so you're going to see some mental tonight." There is no one point where I consider that you're taking me to go <laughs> look at the size of that. <laughs> Watching plow this woman. Yeah. I don't like no one seems to bat an eyelid. Like they I guess a couple of them have maybe been before and they know what they're in for, but Michael, I guess, is this all just designed for us to just go look, nothing phases Michael anymore. Yeah. There's an alternate cut of the film where the whole Fredo thing doesn't happen, but they just reveal the Superman and Michael's head just going down and his head in his hands, like, what am I seeing? What am I doing here? the fact that michael is able to make this realization where at the corner of his eyes just got this length (laughs) (laughs) just waving around in front of him and his brain's going it was fredo i've just clocked it was fredo i mean in fairness what a disconcerting experience there's some bloke (laughs) windmilling on stage whilst you realize that your brother tried to have you killed it's quite a mixture of you don't really know where you're at at this point uh with this then so by the way, Fredo can probably get away with this if he just even just acknowledges that he knows who Johnny Olar is. He can oh, probably get yeah. away more if he has just a little bit of, I've met him once, or something like that. So there must be something in that where Michael is at least going to say there's no possible way these guys could have met. And for Fredo's defence, he probably could have probably said, well, when I was with Mo Green, he was around at some point. Yeah, yeah, you could have something innocuous like that. And yet, but just by saying I've never met him before means <laughs> straight away you're fucked as soon as yeah. he comes to light that you have. And then, as it turns out, it doesn't just come to light that you have, you reveal it. To yeah, that, that fast together because he's not saying it to Michael, but unless this is like full Sean, nothing ever comes of it, I can just speak as loud as I want and no one's going to realize he is pretty much just shouting this, <laughs> shouting this out. I want, that would be maybe the perfect way for that to come back to bite to Sean. Would be that he does reveal <laughs> information that ends up getting himself killed. But something came of it. Sorry, boss. A, a criticism that I had last week, and I spoke about it for uh, the business as well, was I said that in kind of nightclub scenes, they almost make it too quiet to the point where someone can just shout across a bar. Mm. Now, I know the budgets and the level of cinematography when you compare. The Godfather Part Two, the business of football factory, <laughs> but they do get the levels like spot on with this. This and in the next scene where we have the kind of famous uh, Fredo expose with the music blaring in the background and the conversation still going, they do get it just right. Yeah, I hadn't really thought, but yeah, you are right. They do, particularly in uh, 
the kind of uh, whatever you want to call it, like the gala or the like the ballroom or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, they reveal it very well there. I was going to say because one of the things with like Superman bit, it does kind of go quiet and very seedy at one point. It's <laughs> yeah. super. Everyone's just collectively gasping. <laughs> Everyone's like, this poor, poor woman. Why, why is she doing this? <laughs> well, do you think... So the bloke clearly isn't in rotation. Do you think <laughs> the woman's on rotation or that's just her job at this point? They're going to have to be on rotation, surely. I mean... Probably not, they probably don't all survive. I mean, if she's before she goes out, she's got nine to five. What a way to make a living <laughs> in her headphones. Just another Tuesday. You'd rather, I think you'd rather be the hooker that ends up with the senator rather than <laughs> Um If we go on to arguably the most famous scene in the film then, um, where Michael tells Fredo mm. he's been caught. So a bit of background to this scene, both Coppola and uh, the kind of screenwriter, author, uh, Mario Puzo, have both spoken about their nervousness in screening Michael eventually killing Fredo. So Puser said, we had a disagreement. I didn't want Fredo to be killed. Psychologically, I felt that if Michael killed his brother while his mother was still alive, the audience just wouldn't forgive him. So the two of them kind of hashed this out where they focused on the strategy they could use to handle the murder. And the obvious one, they say was to just delay it. You just wait till the mum's killed, and then Michael, as violent as he's been previously, goes and takes out Freda. Um, but it was actually Coppola who says he presented the more interesting strategy. In, as he put it, kind of a, like I never pronounced this properly. Uh, make it more aesthetically pleasing, um, and make it more poetic in the murder with the two kisses leading up to it. And when you do that, he says that you would almost shift the interest from the consequence and the realism to the aesthetics of it. And you would remember what a beautiful scene this is and the fact that he's been kind of marked for death first. So it wouldn't be quite as shocking in what we've seen previously where some guy can just be taken out. So he says, in his words, he wanted to create a visual language capable of redeeming Michael at precisely the same moment that his damnation is most glaringly self-evident. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty amazing. Yeah. He says that this kiss is the most pivotal moment in the entire saga. He says, in choosing to kill Fredo rather than forgive him, Michael seals his own fate, much like when Judas kisses uh, Jesus and signifies his own damnation. Yeah, this is when he's over the hill and far away, isn't it? Yeah, beyond redemption at that point. He he said, not all of my ideas went over so well. Mario was dubious about the idea that it was Fredo who betrayed Michael. He didn't think it was plausible. But he was absolutely against Michael ordering his own brother to be killed. It was a stalemate for a while as nothing would happen unless we both agreed. Uh, he said once he kind of mentioned waiting it out, he said he thought about this for a moment and then said, okay, it would work for him. He was the arbiter of the, what the novel's characters would do. And while I was offering a kind of interpretation from, from the perspective of a director, I would never have decided the character's fate without his say-so. It's pretty cool that he does keep putting it back in his house. Yeah, absolutely. Because he could just go away with it and run. And both those ideas are obviously absolute magic. So it's a good job they did work it out. Yeah, there are kind of 
further things that you can listen to and read with him basically saying he had to present it from the point of what would work on film might not yeah. necessarily work. So it just did little things like that in making it abundantly clear, having this extra scene where you can kind of do it. And what we do get is this kind of a middle ground in between rather than if he just finds out it's Fredo, kills him, and we still have the turn of, look, you can't go back from this once you've killed your family. You get this kind of in-between narrative of like, can he possibly find his way to forgive him? What's Fredo going to do now? The, uh, the other thing with this, like just after it, does Fredo running away kind of make it all worse for himself? I'm somewhat amazed Michael allowed it, but at the same time, would would you have looked at Michael any differently as the kind of ruthless guy that he is if he's then engaging in like a chase? Yeah, like you yeah, never see can't. a villain really chase someone, do you? Unless it's like a no, horror film. You do the slow walk. So I just him, think, yeah, I just think if Frodo's like goes with him, Michael isn't going to kill him there and then. If he sort of throws himself at his feet and just be a bit pathetic, I think he might. He has a better chance of getting away with it than he ends up with. I think he still probably ends up getting killed. Yeah, I know what, that's, I know what you're about to say. Better chance. And I was going to ask you if if you think there's anything Fredo could have done to save himself. No, I just. Other than, yeah, other than being honest from the jump and just saying, look, this is what they asked. I, because obviously he has that conversation on the phone with Johnny Ola where he says, like, you lied. So you could probably take him at his word that he didn't think it was going to be a hit. Now, that seems pretty fucking stupid, but he's also been shown to be a bit stupid. Because I don't know, what does he think it's going to be if it's not a hit? What does he think it's going to happen? But he does seem to sort of indicate that he doesn't doesn't think it. So if he'd initially gone to Michael with that, that would have been his only chance, I think, because he would have shown some honesty. But the fact that he tried to get away with it, and then obviously in this scene he does express basically that he's still pissed off, I think that basically seals it that Michael's just like, right, he's going to go. It, it is brilliant just in the middle of this, packed room where no one else has any clue what's going on if anything it almost looks like a bizarre token of affection for people mm. that kind of aren't in the know happy um, new year yeah and just looking directly at him you've got fredo's reaction of him telling him i know it was you i trusted you and then i guess it's all of the Chicken's coming home to roost for uh, Fredo. He knows the gigs up, and I guess it's shame from his point as well. Oh, for sure it is. Yeah, but he's just—he's just scared, isn't he? He's just terrified of Michael, which he doesn't. He should be. He absolutely fucking should be. Yeah, and it's even more menacing that he, more than most, does know just how ruthless Michael has been. And the other thing is, <laughs> the ironic thing is as well, Vader's just such a sympathetic character because you feel terrible for him in this. And yet he, in theory at least, has tried to get Michael killed. So just the fact that Michael's better at it is not probably the reason to have sympathy with Vader. Just because you're bad at getting your brother killed doesn't mean you're okay. Well, in that's why I think it's interesting with... Um, now we know what the director was explicitly trying to portray. I think brings so much more 
to why he adds in you broke my heart because he is trying to cling on to even one last spot of sympathy or even humanity for Michael in that in this moment Michael who is about to kill his brother despite the fact what's happened is saying you should feel sorry for me after all that I've done he's absolving all of his previous sins and you broke my heart that you would even do this and I guess he's justifying it to the viewer in some warped way but it is the never go against the family isn't it it's everything yeah. else is justifiable but the fact that you've turned the gun on your own family is where i'm drawing a line and it's look, i guess again similar throwback to the first film he says where Fre- uh, fredo tries sticking up for mo green and he says yeah. don't ever speak against the family again yeah. this is just a, a, obviously a more extreme manifestation of it i guess this is where you're stuck in the trap because because Fredo's gone against the family, Michael feels he has to react. But in reacting, he's going against the family, which is what he's mad at Fredo for doing. And they're just stuck in this loop that, I guess, his dad... Well, like, how would you get out of that? Oh, it's, say, Fredo, <laughs> say Fredo has betrayed Vito. Does Vito have him killed? That's his son, though, isn't it? So it's harder. But do you think he does? Like, this is the guy who is kind of the example of how you do this job, do you think he allows Fredo to get away with it? It's a good point. It's a good point. Because on the other hand, when Sonny's killed, he's able to stand up in front of the other bosses and say, look, I'll put this to one side for the good of everything that's going on. Is there a part of him that says, look, I can't allow someone to have done this, whether he's my son or not. Maybe it's difficult because Vito is portrayed as just a warmer character than Michael anyway. Michael's yeah. just portrayed it by the end as a total monster. Whereas obviously, even, and we'll come on to Vito's part as you said, but whenever he's doing any killing in this film, it's entirely justified each time. Fanucci or avenging his dad and his brother's uh, kid or whatever. So the only times we actually see Vito doing something, we're on his side. We've never yeah. really had to see him make an, a morally ambiguous choice no. if we accept that killing is just the yeah. done thing. <laughs> can can we do the killing of Fredo? We'll kind of look back around because I feel like we can kind yeah. of tie this loose end up uh, and then go on to the others. So when Michael does return to Nevada, Fredo tells him that he was resentful for being disregarded, first by Sonny and now by him, claims the ignorance, as you've said, and you've got this really whingy scene by Fredo where I don't know, like, I feel bad for him in this moment. I don't know if you're yeah. kind of like, look, there's some people that may be like, he betrayed his brother. He deserves everything he gets. But even just the way they have him, he's almost horizontal by the end of the scene. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael is sat bolt upright, almost looking down over him. And Fredo's just kind of groveling back in the chair. Michael says, I've always... he, Michael... he plays the role so well. When he says, I've always taken care of you, Fredo, it's like oh. he has no clue oh. how Fredo could possibly be upset in this situation because... Yeah. doesn't realise that that's actually making it worse. Yeah. I, I can't quite do the Fredo voice. <laughs> taking care of me, you're my kid brother, and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? 
It's not oh. how I wanted it. <laughs> I'm your older brother and I was stepped over. And it's a good point because I don't think it's ever fully really thought about that he might, how he might feel about that. I think there's just a transition from Sonny dying to Michael end up becoming Don after the dies. And no one ever even considers the possibility that Fredo is going to step up and do this. It's never even really thought about. No. And so as a result, you, in his shoes, he probably would end up quite resentful. So I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. I'm like smart. Dumb. <laughs> like dumb is a great thing. Yeah. He says like dumb. You're like, oh, God. I'm smart guy. and I want my respect. Which, uh, yeah, that is great acting when he says, because whenever a character goes, like, stamping their feet, I want my respect, you have no respect for them. You're like, I can't respect this guy. He actually sinks to his lowest point in the chair as he says that, and he's almost Mm. covering his face by the end of it. Like, he doesn't even feel that he deserves that level of respect. And there is the thing with Fredo where we obviously don't see him from before when the film takes place, but he is always presented as kind of like the runt of the group. Yeah. The fact that they're even kind of allowing him to position himself out there with Mo Green and not in a position of any real status. Um, Michael's almost looking down his nose at him. Like, how are you letting them treat you like this? And that only gets worse and worse. And so it's strange that a character like this who has ultimately sold out his brother is still able to paint this kind of sympathy still the most sympathetic character in, in probably all the films yeah it's it's do you do you think we still feel that way about him if he has a full head of hair <laughs> so what you think a good portion of your sympathy is because you go for oh, that hairline he, he really can't catch a break this guy i think it adds to his character that he just he just looks quite he just looks quite. I don't even know the <laughs> right word. He, he just looks feeble. Like he looks like. I was gonna say wormy, which isn't even a word. But... Yeah, yeah, no, because he is. He's obviously quite skinny and stuff as well, isn't he? As well, and but uh, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's they're both incredible, Pacino and Cazale, though, in terms of that's great physical acting because Michael's so imposing and worrying, even though obviously Pacino's a small guy, but he's just able to sell. He. As you said, when he sits up, or whatever, there's just something about him. Because he was able to do that sort of, um, sort of quivering, terrified wreck of a guy so perfectly as well. They just, I don't know, they just bounce off each other brilliantly. Yeah. Is is there any plot hole for you in? There must have been more people involved with this opening up of the blinds. It, it is an odd one, isn't it? That, yeah. You wonder about that. And all, Again, I, I can't get away from. So he's opened the blinds. Has Kay just gone in and gone to bed whilst <laughs> they're already open? Because she would go in and close them, surely. Or she's already in bed. I don't think that Fredo could just sneak in and open them. I just don't I don't really see how that would work. No. It's it's a it's a bizarre one. Um and then obviously once the guys are already dead. Yeah. So you go, well, we kind of just go away with go along with it. But like, yeah, would Fredo have killed them? I don't think he's killed them. No. I mean, in which case, someone else would have had to be involved on that or basis. Or he just banks on them not getting out of it. Mm. Alive, Rocco, alive. But is he is he even around when this happens to be able 
to like let them on because there's no indication that he's anywhere near. Yeah, there? he's on the common, isn't he? Because his wife uh, ends up yes, going yes, fucking yes. insane because someone's yeah. been killed on the ground. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Um, she really is going a thousand, isn't she? Because her, yeah. her only scenes <laughs> yeah. are her getting dragged off the dance and then dragged out of the compound. Yeah, she she makes the most of her scenes. <laughs> um, Michael, after Fredo's just put in a hell of a performance there, and then you've got Michael saying, "You're nothing to me now. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. I don't want to know. I don't want to know you or what you do." I don't want to see you at the hotels. I don't want to see you near my house. When you see our mother, I want to know a day in advance so I won't be there. You understand? Yeah, it's pretty pretty incredible. Yeah. Doesn't really waste any time, does he, after their mother dies? You have that moment at the funeral where he kisses him on the head and you have a slight... uh, Has this maybe softened him? And then you and, put two and two together with. And he gives kiss. that look. All he does is give that look to Al, Al yeah. Neary. And then you're just like, oh, fuck. Because that's what it is. The one kiss is to mark you. And then the second mm. one is to give the go ahead. Exactly. And the, um, also, like, even Fredo's like crying at the mother's, obviously, uh, side of his dead mother. Yeah. I do wonder if like, he's crying because of her. And also, that, that's yeah. probably my last <laughs> yeah. layer of protection yeah. now gone. Um, the the scene where he is killed is is so good. He, he's telling the story beforehand about when they used to go fishing, and then ultimately when his son is called back into the house, he knows what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, why is he going out on that boat? Why is he, you know what? I'll I'll rein it in. I think I don't think I'll go out on a fishing boat with you on my own. I was going to say, as a character, from what we've seen previously are you shocked he doesn't run or does he just not have any fighting left in him well a couple of schools of thought isn't there i guess there's either does he know and accept his fate or he's been pretty done throughout is he just does he just not realize does he not think that this is going to happen does he think he's been forgiven well he's he's praying at the point where he's killed isn't he so he must know what's going to happen at that point but his whole thing was, you know, he says a hell made for catching the fish, doesn't yeah. it? That's his whole, whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it obviously it makes total sense. He's probably not the guy you go fishing with. He's the last guy. I mean, <laughs> by the way, Al Neary, has there ever been someone as significant in a set of films whilst having so <laughs> little lines? Yeah. He's, he got, he's just got a look. In the first one, he kills Barzini, who's the main, obviously they kill all the heads of the five families, but he's yeah. the big one. In this one, he's killed Fredo, and he does also have a significant on the third, I can confirm. I won't go into it. Yeah. So you're like, this guy has so much going on, and yet ushers about five words in the whole set of films. It, it, for a scene in which someone's being killed, it is like beautifully done. It's almost like misty on, on the lake. It's that perfect, kind of the sun's just going down. They go out slowly, and then you just see the gun slowly lifted up, and then he's just... just only just in shot as well, the gun. I yeah, so, just see it. When this was originally released after it had been in cinemas, they obviously weren't adjusted to widescreen because we didn't have widescreen TVs then. So for years, people weren't seeing the gun come into shot until it was then panned and scanned, as they said. I just not see the gun again. 
not to either, I don't know, age us or disgrace myself, I think the first time I'd watched it, I wouldn't have. I think I didn't watch it on like a wide screen. So therefore, I don't think I technically saw the gun either. Just everything yeah, I think in, it, implied. I think it was remastered, well, which we spoke about earlier in 2008. Right, right, right. So before then you were getting, I mean, you still had widescreens, but it wasn't of the same quality no. that you see now. The other which, incredible thing about the scene is, first time I watched it, I thought, no, they're not actually going to do this, surely. And yet every single time, there is a part of you who goes, they can't, they can't actually kill him, obviously. And it's insane. It's, it's kind of, <laughs> if you ever watched any film that gets a bit weird and you have like some like incestuous thing going on, <laughs> and you go, no, 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 this isn't heading that direction. Yeah, okay, it's definitely heading in that direction. That's what it is with Fredo's killing. Yeah, damn shame that Fredo had to go out like that, but... Ultimately, we then got the shot, don't we, of Michael sat on his own in the house, and it is like he's completely at that point gone against everything his dad said. Like he's distanced himself from all of his family. His mum has died. His brother's just been killed. Have we had <laughs> have we had this weird scene with his sister before this as well? What the scene where she's begging? Yeah, when she brings a, yeah, yeah. A, new, a new bloke in and he's speaking about him in the third, in the third this person. Is right in front at, of that's him. right at the start, isn't it? Merle, your boy Merle. Yeah. You'd like him. It'd be your boy. He, he for me, was um, he was the Mo of the sequel. Um, like, yeah, coming in and asking for a drink. Like, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> uh, I don't know if they were just like thirsty on set at this point because you've had Bernard Dacker, who's mentioned earlier in the piece, and he's coming in and asking, <laughs> for, asking for a drink and then. He's just talking about him in front of him. Painting his I don't sister out to just world. be a whore, I don't know who he is. I don't know what he does. He's right there. You can ask him if you want, Mike. Yeah. And the best thing about that, and you get this in uh, mob films, where there just happens to be one person in the entire city that just doesn't know who you are or what you're capable of. <laughs> and so they just still carry that swagger about them that they have absolutely no right to have. Yeah. And this is and this is what you get. The ultimate heat check, Mel. Just comes in, sees what he can do. No. <laughs> it's so good. Tries a free from range, doesn't land. Oh no. And he's obviously not impressive enough that she's prepared to speak for him and say, like, he does this. This is what he does. This is what we do. She's just kind of like, Yeah, there's nothing I can say here that's making this any better. I mean, Connie in between films has clearly just become a total bitch. Because she comes back with this Merle guy. She's shouting the odds. She comes in kind of half-assed, wants to marry him. And then as soon as Michael sticks it on her a bit, it's like, yeah, okay, maybe not then. Well, or maybe he, I won't do it. She doesn't see her kids anymore. He's calling her a whore because, I mean, he insinuates that she's been married between the films and divorced. Yes. And now he's getting, trying to get married again. I mean, you know potentially an argument you killed her first husband who abused her <laughs> but you've maybe played a part in all of this but uh he's uh, obviously that's never occurring to mike he's never that's never that thought wouldn't even begin to surface he's seen in fairness he's seen the original bloke she's brought home who he's had to take care of the second bloke i mean we don't know what's happened to him but he clearly got out when he realized how bad she was or <laughs> he was that bad she got rid and so if she's got a type, if this is the third example, and the the tone in which Michael says it suggests to me there was maybe someone else between this that she I brought think over. Yes, absolutely. So 
maybe she does just have the worst taste in the world. Like I'll tell you who you could link her up with. Ellis in Die Hard One. <laughs> Having seen him there, this would be a perfect link up. I think Michael would kill him in less than five minutes. I think I'm not having him. <laughs> Michael, Bubby. <laughs> we, I don't think he'd finish the opening sentence before he had a gun <laughs> in his face. I think really, all things considered, I think you'd probably accept Merle for her. I think you go, look, this guy seems pretty fucking harmless. We'll put up with his shit. Take her off my hands, please. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly that. Although, next family gathering, he looks like he could be Fredo's wife in this situation where Michael's <laughs> having to say, look, Connor, you take, you sort him out or I'm going to have to. I imagine a great, it's not as soft as they would be with Fredo's wife. It's a great shout. He should get with Fredo's wife. They would be a great couple. <laughs> it would be carnage, but great fun. See, if we did turn this into a TV show, that's the kind of storyline that you can like squeeze in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And Michael's encouraging it because it then frees up the two members of his family. Fredo wants him killed, but Michael's insistent. No, no. <laughs> he stays alive. Um, all right. What were we? Okay. So the crime committee and this kind of subsection of the film, they're putting Michael or trying to put Michael on trial uh, as part of an organized crime case against the Corleone family. Henson Jelly agrees to testify against Michael, who he still thinks has double-crossed him and is placed under witness protection. First question for you. Pentangeli, by the way. Penson Jelly, come on. I've I've been struggling with that uh, all day. (laughs) Trying to get there. And then reading it, it's like... um, He seems very calm for a guy who is in witness protection going against one of the most powerful men in America. Remarkably, doesn't he? Well, he's giggling when he goes into the courtroom. I think particularly as well, not even just that he's going against Michael. I've, I've just touched on earlier that he's very much about the old-fashioned Sicilian values. And he's just broken the omerta like that. Yeah. And really has no real bother about the implications of it. <laughs> and obviously we're going to touch on until yeah. all he has to do is see a face and he starts realising, actually this is a bad idea. What? Yeah. Well, one, the prosecutors here seem about as worthless <laughs> as you it's can a ever bad see. Like, it's like they've put their worst people on this case. And we've got a court scene in the film we're going to do after this, which is maybe worse with the, with the uh, judge they've got there. But here, this all seems very chilled for when they're taking out <laughs> like a mob boss. Yeah, it does seem like a bit of a boys' club. Get the brother over, and uh, that's the game changer. Not a bad gig for that guy. Turn up, <laughs> don't say anything, piss off. He doesn't. He doesn't even go out for food before he goes back. He loves the old country. <laughs> even in the way in which Pantangeli uh, reverses his statement. He's even kind of cracking up. Then he's like, look, the, the guys told me they'd make me a deal. Uh, it was all eyes. All of it. <laughs> and unless you can tell me different, what what could he have been arrested for? 
like at the point when the policeman comes in, he's about to be killed himself. <laughs> he's being held at gunpoint. Like I don't know what what's made him flip. <laughs> it's it's literally like he assumed Michael was going to kill him, so he was like, "Look, get me safe. I can't. I'm not safe on the street." Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. So what I don't know the, what what are the charges that he's saying were against him that they were offering him a deal for. So eventually, has he gone down for like misleading a police officer? <laughs> because I don't know what he's been charged with. Well, actually, I suppose after that, well, yeah, he goes in point. and confesses to, to killing multiple people. Yeah, this is it. So there's a lot of crimes on his sheet. He's just then absolving Michael of anything. He he does his job. Um, his brother gets to go home, and in the follow up to this is on the rewatch, probably my favourite scene in the film, in where. Tom Hagen visits him in prison. So good, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I, I completely. I maybe. I watched this on. I think I said before Christmas Eve about three years ago for the first time, maybe. Hmm. And I don't know if there's just so much to take in the first time of viewing it, but there's scenes in this film that are beautifully shot, and just the dialogue in in this scene is just incredible. There. You know, when a plot against the Roman Emperor failed, the plotters were always given a chance to let their families keep their fortunes. And then Frank, while speaking in this kind of tongue, negotiates a better life for his family. Or while they could just be having a chat about like the game that happened the previous Sunday. Yeah, only the rich guys, Tom. The little guys got knocked off, and all their estates went to the emperors. Unless they went home and killed themselves, then nothing happened, and their families were taken care of. That was a good break, a nice deal. <laughs> <laughs> they it's went a nice home. bit of respect for him as well, isn't it? Yeah, sat in a hot bath, opened up their veins, and bled to death. And sometimes they had a little party before they did it. I actually, and I would maybe make the argument that Tom Hagen is actually the most terrifying person in this film. Wow. Because, because he's got the presentation of being quite reasonable. And yeah, everything. More probably like, a, you see him as like a nicer guy, and then actually he's just as bad. We see Michael snap a few times. Hmm. We never get this feeling that Hagen is out of control. Like Even at the points when he feels Michael is kind of cutting him out, he's pretty chilled. Like... He doesn't react. He doesn't do anything to... Yeah, he's always on a level, isn't he? Yeah, and so when he's got this in the scene which, in which he sets up the senator... Except when the court owes him an apology! Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Why was that the drawing point for him? That was the breaking point. Of all that the times for him to his... lose his head, that was it. That is great, the, uh, the audacity of this court owes <laughs> an apology. Yeah, he, he's, he's brilliant, um, particularly yeah, in that I... scene... Every time I actually um, watch these films, I realise how much I underappreciated Tom Hagen, the character, and Robert Duvall as well. They, he's so, so good. The um, you're, you're right about the thing with the, the hooker getting killed with the senator. I think that's when you really get a glimpse, obviously, that Tom's involved in this. But yeah. All that's left is our friendship. And it's very much, he's doing what Michael does there. And you yeah. didn't necessarily know that Tom had that in him. That's a, yes, obviously a pretty fucking dark scene. Yeah, um, and you're seeing how dirty they're willing to get, of how they've just got this guy in a vice. 
earlier you've, you've got the quote haven't you from michael where he says tom you know you surprised me if anything in this life is certain if history has taught us anything it's that you can kill anybody maybe they quote the film yeah and that's after tom said it'd be like trying to kill the president when we do a president is then assassinated three years later in real time yeah and again it falls back to the um, first one when the whole thing you can't kill a cop and Michael's yeah. like, you can kill a cop, I'll do that, no problem. And then Tom comes around, yeah, maybe you can kill a cop, actually. Well, yeah, because Tom, with the objection of you can't kill anybody, is takes out an innocent hooker who seemingly he renders her life meaningless because she has no family and she took drugs. Brutal, uh, that line, isn't it? No, it'll be like she never existed. Oh, God, Tom. Yeah, if you kind of read any discourse about the film now, people are quite uncomfortable with that scene when, for me, I don't think you have to read that deeply into it. Isn't it just to show how deep this goes and the limits they're willing to go to? Like at this point, everyone else who's a victim in this film has some level of being deserving like she's yeah. the only person who's completely innocent yeah, and true. is killed in maybe the most violent circumstances of the film her and the horse yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> her cartoon uh yeah that is true and i think that is one where there is a shift in gear isn't there when that's oh god this is but that's you know these guys are that they're monsters yeah, they yeah. Shouldn't, you know anyone who's kind of not happy about that should sort of check the record this is what they would have done yeah, uh, I saw a question and they say if The Godfather almost romanticises the lifestyle of organised crime in the first film, what does part two do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is it kind of uh, putting it in the mirror a little bit more, isn't it? Going, this is what can happen to you. This is how it sort of can corrupt you. And Michael's yeah. probably the perfect sort of character for it. The, the sort of his arc, if you like, demonstrates even, that perfectly. Like, we'll get on to rewatchability, but there isn't really like almost every scene of this film is in in a way and in some way uncomfortable sure like, yeah, yeah you can't watch it almost like at ease any of this because there's always some kind of thing there making you question or making you look at and yeah that in particular is a good way of saying just remember who we are the Kate, um, sorry in that bit way because he says uh when tom's saying to me he's one, he goes, uh, why do you hurt me, Michael? Seems a fair question. Why does he <laughs> just repeatedly disrespect Tom throughout the film? Um, and also where he says, what, do you just want to wipe out everyone? And then Michael's like, I don't want to wipe out everyone, just my enemies. I was like, That's a good line. Yeah. But then Rocco volunteering to do that hit. Fucking bizarre. <laughs> because you know you're getting killed. You go shoot someone at an airport, you're getting killed. You're not yeah. getting out of there. Just, I don't know, it was a kamikaze mission. Weird. He wanted it's to just prove good, his loyalty. Good. He seemed to be because he was when Mike's going, he can do it. He's like, Yeah, you can do that. No worries, I'll do it. Yeah. Feels very much like what's his face in a Project X who just claims he knows how to do everything yeah. until the moment he doesn't actually reveals he doesn't. Coaster. Yeah, that was it. I was about to say Carlos, that would have been bad, wouldn't it? Oh <laughs> god. Um Kay's reveal in this. So a great scene. Michael has been told by Tom at this point that his wife is miscarried mm. Kay then after and I watched this again on the bus home today Michael and 
he says a lot of things in this film. You're like, oh, just stop talking. <laughs> when he says, we'll make sure you forget all about this miscarriage. I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? His uh, his words at this aren't exactly in the feminist movement, are they? There's a few things he says. Oh. He, this is like, and in this case, it's a baby, but a pet dying and asking the person immediately, so do you want to go to the pet shop and get another one? Like yeah, he says, yeah. Straight back on the horse. There's, well, for a start, it's like he's not that upset. He's like, I know this. I know you've been upset by this. We'll have another one and you'll forget all about this. It's like, oh, come on, Michael, <laughs> please. The incredible thing is that he has zero idea, like any self-awareness in this regard. She says, like, Michael, you're blind, which is an incredible sort of, again, juxtaposition to compare to he sees everything else going on and he kind of works everyone else and he's a master chess player and yet this thing closest to home he really has no comprehension of he doesn't understand her emotions and the fact that she actually obviously as you're going to come on to actually got rid of it rather than miscarried this marriage is unholy it was an abortion michael just like this marriage is an abortion when her thing of uh this must all end it's like, it should all end, but listen, Kay, we're loving this. It's not ending. This fucking thing's carrying on. But it's not like this is Henry VIII to try and have a son. Like, he already has a son at this point. He always it has two sons, doesn't he? That. No, he just has one. He has a son yeah. and a daughter. So he already has, like, his heir, if we're going down if that you way. Wanted, so yeah, if you want to go down that well, I don't know why he's so desperate, unless he's looking at the fact that he was the youngest and... I guess going about many, get as many as you can out, I guess, was probably the thing. Yeah. Have K force out of football team. <laughs> yeah. The great thing being when she's like, look at our son, he's messed up. And it's, nah, he's fine. He's fine. <laughs> I'm go- I don't know this kid. I'm going to hazard a guess he probably is a bit messed up based on so, he's got a bit of an unconventional upbringing, yeah. shall I say? Well, you see, just he almost looks at his happiest when he's with Fredo, who is almost kind of on his level, and that goes again goes again to how he's viewed. Um, but the sto- the time when he's out fish- fishing with Fredo is the, the the biggest smile you see on his face. That is touched on in the third film, so okay. there's something for you to look forward to. Um, with this, I, I was going to ask you the question: Do you think so? Kay obviously knows the what Michael's involved in. Do you think she knows just how far gone he is at this point? Because I feel like you perhaps don't reveal that you have aborted his son if you know the extent he's now going to with people that are crossing him. Yeah, good point. Yeah, She, could she have been says danger. effectively she had to tell him this to get out because he would never want to be with her now that he knows yeah. this. But I still feel like... She, she maybe doesn't know just how far gone he is because she's asking questions in the first film and he lies to her. And I don't know ever to what extent she knows the business they're dealing in. You're right. She maybe doesn't fully grasp, but I think she's getting an idea because she does seem increasingly scared of him. Yeah. And I think this is just one sort of like, kind of in, in the same way as like a, I don't know, someone who's been abused will have like one last sort of probably hit out at them probably. Yeah. And this is probably kind of that, where she's just, her last bit of power was to have this abortion, I guess. The only bit of power she had over him. Is, um, sorry. Michael almost looks like he's coming at it from the angle, like he doesn't really love her for any other reason than the fact that she can produce 
that is done yeah, for him. Exactly. Because exactly. when he's come back from Cuba, you've got to assume he hasn't come straight from the airport to then sit with Tom. So the fact that Tom's the one revealing that she's had a miscarriage, he must have been gone for a considerable, considerable amount of time and still not returned home to her first. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing's an odd setup, isn't it? The other question, and you can tell me again if this is touched on later, surely Tom had to know that she was getting an abortion. This is one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, well, like, yeah he must have known. Like, um, the attention to detail, like, that she's not allowed off the compound. Exactly. And in whenever this was set, it, it wasn't as easy, I'm um, saying no. this like, like I've had a couple myself. <laughs> it, it wasn't as easy as it is now to go just go and get an abortion. No. Like, So unless she snuck out, and I imagine it's not a quick process either. No, the, um, and, and maybe that leads into some of Michael's resentment towards Tom as well, because he must, yeah. as of this point, because he must know. There's no way Tom can't know about it. Yeah, it's just... Slightly odd that that doesn't get confronted in the film in a way. Slightly odd. Yeah, that what I only really there's enough going on, I guess. I didn't think about it the first time watching it. I guess because I was so shocked by seeing this. and it makes a lot of sense. Saying an abortion and then him hitting her is a pretty big. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't thinking about like where did she get this done. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's just it's not the NHS. Yeah, because. For Tom to do that, and when you look at how ruthless he is later in the film, I don't imagine he has that much. I don't imagine he has too much of a bond with Kay. Like you don't see any other scene of them kind of chatting or talking or anything to where that could even be implied. So it's not like he'd be going out of doing favors for her behind Michael's back, particularly when he knows they've literally had a conversation saying anyone could be killed. And yeah, and bear in mind, obviously, we've seen him stop her going off the compound before. Yeah. So he's basically happy to follow Mike's orders. It feels weird that something as big as this, Tom would go against it. It does feel odd that he would do yeah. that. I don't. I almost don't believe it actually, but it obviously does happen. And under the context of the film, he would have had to have known about it. There's no way he doesn't. Yeah, her, her acting in that scene, and I do think pretty much every scene that she's in in the film is phenomenal as well in the way yeah. that she delivers this. Yeah, she plays that part brilliantly. Yeah. Um, Mike, by the way, at the end of this, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. Very mad at times. She's got all these like issues that she's genuinely bringing up. Like, I don't want to hear about it. Oh, fair enough then. You carry on. Harsh from her son, by the way, when she's at the door. Her sister's oh. being a bit snaky there, by the way. Um, although I do understand why. Uh, she <laughs> should just get out. Like, think, just yeah, get I out. Think she's, um, I think she's doing a nice thing. But her son, he doesn't want any of it. I will Unless say what Michael says. What Michael says to her is right. Whereby he says, like, uh, "Don't you know? I would never let that happen. That I'll do everything in my power to make sure that yeah. doesn't happen." I don't know what she ever thought she was just going to go away with the kids. I don't know yeah. how she ever thought that was going to fly. Interesting to see how that um, paternity battle in court would play out. Are you a loving father, Michael? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll do anything for my family. Have you seen this picture he's drawn for me? If that doesn't, <laughs> if that doesn't say it, I don't know what will. We're expecting Fredo to be here today. Couldn't make it. Couldn't make it. Sorry. Just can't before. Happen. Can't happen. It's none of your family here, Michael. Well, <laughs> yeah. Look. Actually, I was going to say just before we get on to uh, 
the last bit here, but I think we've kind of covered each of the loose ends gradually as we've gone through. Uh, Roth being killed at the airport, Pentangeli being uh, killing himself, the senator being set up, and Michael be sitting alone at the end of the film in the family compound. Yeah, just to touch on the bit you said about earlier, where he says to Tom, um, where he's having that conversation with Tom about you're the only yeah. one I can trust or whatever. I think that was in that meeting earlier. They have two sit downs. I think that was covered in the one earlier, as you said. Um, yeah, when, when he's saying that I kept some distance from you for this reason, is to sort of when he lets him in. I think again, he's the only one Pacino and Deval together is just such a great combo because yeah. Tom's got all this frustration about like why am I being shut out? As you would, because obviously he's not technically their family. No. He is and he isn't. He says in so the first film, doesn't he? He's like, I thought it was because you didn't see me as your brother or something like that. Yeah. And then I think Michael does really see him basically as a brother, but yeah. realises he's got to be able to keep a bit of distance between him. And again, it's it's a genius play by Michael, but it's also it's, test, re- it? it's also the reason why he's distant from everybody it's because it's absolutely the right tactical play but sort yeah. of emotionally and like as a friend or family member that's just impossible you're never going to be fully close to someone like that you wouldn't actually want to play poke with those two would you christ <laughs> well you wouldn't you'd be terrified if you're one <laughs> <laughs> um all right let's go into the uh, veto section of the mm. film so 1901 the parents and brother of nine-year-old Vito Andolini are killed in Corleone, Sicily, after his father insults local mafia chief Don Sizio. That's out of order that they kill Paolo. That's <laughs> just bang out of order. <laughs> whole whole few really people, and he, gets, <laughs> and he gets he gets wiped out. Did ruin do, the whole procession. Do you think they don't nearly seem to be panicked enough? Like the runaway seems fairly slow. There is a delayed reaction, isn't there? It seems they do drop the coffin very quickly. So you're on your own now. <laughs> and so when uh, the mum and young Vito then go to visit the dom, yep. she gets blown back like in Django, where she flies about like 10 feet through the doorway at the end of the film. Um, it is great, that. Yeah, Vito doesn't take much of a look back. Gets the hell out of there quick. Yeah, it should be... Uh, shouldn't really be able to get away, should it? That's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, then you've got the Don on his uh, King Herod flex telling people, where is this boy? <laughs> Find me this boy. He needs to be killed. What if they had just start just killing kids in, <laughs> in, the, in the video? Like, look, can't take a chance here. Um, Pretty remarkable that he's able to get out, get on a fucking boat to America. Yeah, it <laughs> does his thing. Um, yeah, he escapes on a ship to New York City, registered as Vito Corleone on Ellis Island. Next thing really... We see him losing his job in a grocery store due to the interference of Don Fanucci. Maybe my favourite Don name in the film, actually, Fanucci. Very good, yeah. His neighbour then invites him to take part in burglaries, which is almost supposed to be an introduction to the lifestyle, but we know we know behind the screen that 
he's already experienced what he did as a child, so it's kind of ingrained in him. It's quite a funny thing now, though, isn't it? That this guy seems to be a fairly nice, young, respectable man. Yeah. Bearing in mind he's witnessed his mother get slaughtered in front of him and then yeah. hopped on a boat to America. He's going to be probably a messed up guy, and yet he's seemingly fine. Until he bumps into Clemenza. Yeah. He's a crook. It's like in um, like a superhero film or something where they just have like some strand of DNA that just needs to be triggered by something, and it just awakens <laughs> yeah. what's inside them. And Clemenza just lights this match. Clemenza's whole introduction is great, though. This whole thing. Look, I have this going for me, and then yeah. we're going to go steal this or whatever. It's great. Well, Vito, in, in that moment, was like, this is your friend's house, is it? And even though this is your friend, I think <laughs> I, I'm assuming you know at this point when yeah. he's picking the lock. I was going to say, at what point do you go? I can't play dumb at this point. I think, <laughs> I'm, I think I'm aware. Can you help Weirdly, move the furniture? this guy whose first interaction with me was to hide a gun. Turns out he's a bit dodgy. <laughs> By the way, the, one of the things that got me is um, they're moving the furniture like they're just going to sneak this rug out of there. Like, if the furniture's put back correctly, he's not going to notice this giant rug <laughs> that's gone from the middle of his room. Like, they could have just tipped the furniture over and taken the rug, and they'd have been sound. It would have had the same response. Yeah, there was no need to be careful with the furniture. Uh, the shot of Vito stood behind the doorway as the police would approaches the door is one of the best shots of the whole film. One of my favourite shots I've seen, actually. It's so good. Clemenza is at the door, isn't he? Yeah, sorry. With the gun. Yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah. Um, and again, you, you you kind of have a weird sort of Mandela effect where you think he's going to shoot it. Well, it says something. No, no, no shot. That Vito isn't as startled as he should be for some when someone has a gun almost to a policeman's head. <laughs> and he kind of stands there quietly. You don't see him like he's not tetchy. It doesn't, he's not breathing heavy. Like he's fairly relaxed in that situation. You see that we're going to come into a lot more with the the play and then yeah. Fenucci's stand up, whatever. He's very calm and composed there, where he really probably shouldn't be. No, no, that is uh, you get that little behind the scenes where what you're seeing a young girl being assaulted. Where was that? Is are they saying that's um, her dad? By the way, that he's with. I don't know if that's like directly or implied or whatever. Because he said certain... something like "my girl." Yeah, whether he's that's just like I don't know, like a manager yeah. or whatever, or or something more. Well, sinister. I thought it was strange that he was almost like <laughs> pitching her to his mate. Yeah. <laughs> but she's beautiful, isn't she? You'd love to go on that. And then, obviously, one, do you think is to show how powerful this Don is, and two. Just, I guess, how feared they are that they are seeing this young girl being assaulted and they're both like, fuck that. I'm not getting involved in that. Yeah, you can see, obviously, with Vito, he's conflicted that he wants to. And then um, his friend, obviously, Jenko, is terrified of him, just visibly yeah. terrified. The only thing I would say with it is this guy, he's this sort of big bad guy in the neighborhood, stands up in the play. Jenko mouths off him and doesn't realize it's him. Yeah. And Vito doesn't have a clue who he is. He has to be no, told. No. I mean, this is a little <laughs> bit weird. This guy is sort of notorious, and yet both of you, one of you didn't recognize him, the other doesn't actually know of his existence. It's a bit weird. But also, isn't 
he he references him when he loses his job. Like he says, doesn't he? Uh, yeah. So he knows his name, but doesn't know what he looks like. Uh, but that's after that, isn't it? He loses his job after that point. Oh, I thought he'd already lost. I think he, because I think Finucci goes in there and says basically that he wants someone else in the job, isn't it? Okay, that makes more sense now. So therefore Vito gets binned and then then decides his life of crime. Yeah, exactly that. And then I don't know how much Robin they're doing to where they garner his attention. They're not doing very well laying low as thieves if you're also making a name for yourself at the same time. Would you say they're Zebedee and (laughs) Finucci's Billy Bright? They're a bit more effective. <laughs> and then, yeah, we get this thing, don't we, where you almost have the the, the power play where Fanucci begins to extort him and Vito tells his friends, just remember I did you a favour, wink at the camera. Yeah, one of his few English words, I'll take care of everything, isn't it? Yeah. The thing is, that's uh, his thing with the, the bargaining with Fanucci, where he basically gives cough up less money. Apart from the fact it's a proper heat check. He's checking and it turns out he's okay. But also, that's the first... That's a sign of it to him that, right, I can fucking take this guy. Because he's shown him a bit of weakness immediately by by allowing him to do this. We're, showing, we're seeing a different side to Vita, but also yeah. he's basically been presented with an opportunity there. He does what's just been referenced several times on this podcast now, where he essentially does the TED interview, where <laughs> by being a dick, the Don is like... You know what? I like you. I'll give you a job. You can do yeah. some work for me. <laughs> yeah, that's it, balls. I like that. That just works in just every film. Like, this guy's <laughs> going to kill you, but if you're an asshole before he does. So, you know what? I admire this, that you would speak to me like that. Very much a thing of, of a film. In reality, don't try it. Don't, yeah. don't go doing it. It will end more for you like the senator mouthing off to Michael yeah. than it will to Vito mouthing off to Finucci. You have this kind of neighborhood festival then where Vito follows him up to his apartment as the towel wrapped around the gun. Now, I've seen it referred to this previously. I don't know if you think this is media studies reading into things too far. When he does shoot him and the towel becomes inflamed. Yeah. Is that a passing of the torch? I wonder if that's like you said, kind of a, a English or media studies sort of take on it or whether they intentionally did it or whether as it after it happened, they thought maybe they considered that or maybe they didn't at all. Maybe they thought it looked cool because it does look cool. Yeah, because uh, having read those quotes from uh, Coppola speaking about the just the thought they had going into uh, the killing of Fredo, like you wouldn't rule it out. He does seem... That's like, it. He's got you that have, in the locker the kind of uh, symbolism with the oranges and things like that, it does seem like it's not beyond the realms of what you do. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, because of his hymn, it's entirely possible. And you, yeah. you would argue, well, why else have the towel? I know it's, it's a means yeah. of covering up the weapon, but it's still quite an <laughs> odd thing to do. <laughs> I, I notice you don't have a gun, but why do you have that white towel wrapped halfway up why your Why are wrist? you holding that out in front of you? How odd. Um... His solid jacket, by the way, where at first it can... Yeah. Face, <laughs> the, the bullet is in effect, just rip your jacket off. Oh, no, now I've been shot in the face. Yeah, it confused me at first. Like, I thought it was like, aha. <laughs> you thought what? you could get through this thick blazer. 
Which, your mistake. Even if you had like a vest or something underneath, it would be a weird play to take the shot in there where you would survive and then show the guy shooting you. You should have <laughs> aimed for the head, Thanos style. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, after this, we have uh, this sequence of Vito kind of proving what a powerful guy he is where he has this exchange with the landlord, doesn't he? He's then oh, bumbling so over good. himself as he comes back in. He's like, what's he offering some food? And he's like, maybe next time, maybe next time. Doesn't know whether to sit down, can't get the door open afterwards. The thing they're negotiating is just absolutely magic where he, yeah. he'll say something <laughs> and then he just turns to uh, Jenko and he just keeps haggling him down without <laughs> even having to say anything. And then when he goes, of course, the dog stays as well. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> absolutely magic. Um, but again, total opposite to what we're seeing with Michael, where Michael's doing his decisions where you think you're getting, you're spiraling out of control here. Everything Vito does is for the good of other people. And we're sort of that constant contrast. Yeah. The fact that De Niro auditioned for Sonny in the first Godfather film and read for the role. Um, and then he was offered a, a smaller part, which he ultimately turned down for scheduling issues. He was offered poorly. Okay. So, so do he you could think- have been. <laughs> Nearly, well, at that point you wouldn't have been able to have him in the second film funny sort of sliding doors isn't it yeah because for one they do have a similar look I know some of it's obviously makeup and things but it would be hard to get a, an actor of the same quality playing such a powerful role because you've got to imagine it's intimidating for whichever actor does that you're stepping into the shoes of what was already one of the most popular performances in recent history. And you've got to play arguably a more energetic version of him because you're doing his younger years. He's, he's ridiculously good. It's why I do think this is one of his best roles when you, when you ask what's his best role, because obviously you've got the fact that it's in another language, which he's had to learn, but he's managed to put his own twist on the character and feel quite De Niro whilst making it entirely believable that this is the character that goes on to become Brando's character. Yeah. He's somehow managed to sort of mesh the two. It's uh, it's pretty unbelievable. And he's you are captivated by him in the whole time, even though again he's in a, a language that you don't understand. It's some of the, so many of the scenes, you could probably take the subtitles off and you'd have an idea of what he's saying yeah. what he's doing. Yeah. It's an incredible performance. From a casting perspective Will anything have aged better than the fact that you've got a young Pacino and a young De Niro in a film already? Like, I know they aren't on screen together, but just from, in terms of how that's aged, in terms of you as picking the people for this role, like, that's got to age very well. It's incredible, isn't it? Like, now you would end up, and you wouldn't have ended up picking anybody else to go into those roles or to have like the careers or whatever. After. Yeah, they've both just gone on. It's it's, it's kind of like having MJ and Leo and Damon come on at the same time, <laughs> yeah, and just happened to look in. It's insane. Um, the, the latter kind of uh portion of Vito's story, then, so you have his plan of going into the olive oil business ultimately to end up at Don Sizio's door. Um, visit Sicily for the first time, which is nice to uh, return there. 
and we get to this point where well yes full circle he gets to avenge his mother and his father's death Sitsio has hung around just long enough to allow you to see him get killed off looks about 110 yeah very good in that he well i guess he does hear him the first time he's choosing not to believe what he's heard Mm. and he just leans into his ear tells him his father's name and then before you even have a chance to blink he's got the knife and he's dragging it through his stomach yeah it's a brutal uh pretty grim way of doing it isn't yeah it? i like it you feel you feel like uh you're getting vengeance with him don't you as well yeah it's yeah great he's taking you with him and i think both of us have complained previously about when you don't get to see that like you want to see the bad guy get his comeuppance and yeah He's almost, because you are going back and forth so much, you've almost forgotten this guy from the first two minutes of the film. (laughs) Yeah. And then once he's back in Sicily, it all kind of clicks and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm all in. And then he gets the good little getaway. He's got, uh, what's his name? Tomasino. Shot in the legs. Fast hands, yeah. Which is a nice little tying up a loose end why his legs are fucked in the first film. Yeah. Nice, nice little tie up. Yeah, it's very good. Very good. Um the final scene of this film, as we as we've said, the Corleones gather in their dining room to surprise Vito on his birthday. I think you almost see why Michael does end up becoming the Don in this room of powerful mm. people already. Um he announces that in response to the attack on Pearl Harbor, he's left college and enlisted in the Marines. Sonny and Tom are both raging. <laughs> Fredo's happy does, for him, bless him. Yeah, Fredo's <laughs> happy for him, which I guess shows the kind of guy he is. And mm. Michael doesn't care what his dad thinks. He doesn't care what any of those think. He's a man who makes his own decisions and he stands by them. And that's why ultimately he becomes the head of the family. Yeah, he's strong-minded. He's obviously defiant because he doesn't like that, say, Tom's having conversations with the Don about his future, which is a little yeah. bit weird. He finds it a bit weird and it is a bit weird, isn't it? It's kind of a bit odd. But it throughout even with all the, the bad things he does in this film, throughout this film and throughout the first film, it's obvious that he's the most suited to that role. Yeah. Fredo's obviously a bit stupid. Tom Hagen's still an outsider looking in, unfortunately. Um Sonny's just angry, too hot headed. So he's the perfect role guy for the role. Um as a result, all the qualities that mean he's played at the role also mean, as this film ends, he's totally alone because that's you can't really have people around you with that. Even he still has that level of composure, even when he's told them this massive choice that he's made. Like he's unflinching in what he said, and he, he's not even kind of sat as if there's a there's an attack on him taking place. Like he's still just completely composed, as if he's just told them what the weather is outside. His calmness is great. It's a crazy thing. I mean, this is why I consider it, not just because it's his best film, but Pacino's best performance a mile by a mile, is that pretty much most things after this, he just has to dial up to a thousand every time. He's shouting and ranting. In this, he's so like cold and calculated with everything. And he has the occasional shout, and maybe that's where he got drunk on that and, and kind of got carried away in later films because he does it all the time. And this is everything, like I said, everything's just so composed that you're like, oh, this is an unbelievable performance. He does he's unnerving. It, uh, if you sat opposite <laughs> him, he'd be unnerving. 
he does it in the scene um, where there's just been the attempts on his life and he says, in my room <laughs> where my wife sleeps and my kids come to play. Yeah, it's suddenly quiet. But because it's just been uh, me here this week, I, I don't feel as uh, bad in having the volume rates because usually, as you just said, when you've got a Pacino film on, I feel like I'm constantly sat there with a the remote in my hand laughing to do up and down on the volume because just when you think you've got it right... He's, He's ready to scream because she's got a fat ass. <laughs> <laughs> she had a great ass. You got your head all the way up it. <laughs> I've got two more questions before we move on to uh, our other film because I do still think, I mean, we've been speaking about this for two hours, 19 minutes. <laughs> and if this goes through to the next round, I still feel like there's plenty for Keenan to come on and say. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. Um, By the way, horrifying, basically, the introduction of Carlo in this as well, though. That basically, the, Sony's basically just bullied his sister into being in a relationship with this guy, <laughs> who turns out to be a total monster. Yeah, not good. Um, yeah, I have two questions for you. Um, I was reading through some uh, kind of reflections on this earlier in the week, and I thought it was interesting. I saw someone ask, does Michael really have much of a character arc in part two they say he starts as someone who wants to have an identity separate from his family particularly his father then when his family is attacked he realizes how much he values them and switches his goals to protecting them going as far as to kill throughout the entire first film we watched a sweeter milder gentler side of michael be consumed until he is don corleone they say what I always interpreted the last scene as in the godfather where he openly lies to Kay after offering the truth cements his arc does this really change in the second film? Yeah, but I think it's just a continuation of that. I think it's... If that's him, if him sort of uh, becoming Don is him going from 100 down to zero, we're firmly into the minuses. Now we're going down to hell. He's basically, we're just watching him slowly lose his humanity. And I think he never does anything that you can't, that you feel uncomfortable with, I think, outside of the, the hooker thing, which actually he's yeah. removed from. He's not actually involved in technically anyway. Because he's not say there. Can't justify for a second. You can't justify in his fucking no, crazy yeah, I world. wondered if that was the word you, <laughs> you were going to use. There's nothing he does that you can't justify. There is, you can make a case that each person, yeah, I, I can see why he's killed and yeah. why he's done this in that crazy world they live in until yeah. the Fredo thing happens and you as a viewer are like, Okay, this guy's beyond redemption. And you can explain that as well. You can just explain why he did it. But there's just a feeling of like dread, I think, about him at that point. I actually think the bigger issue with Frodo in that moment is that he then admits that he knows about the lawyer that's working against him in the, the court case. And he realizes, look, there's so much information this guy knows that he's either not telling me or he's keeping from me that he, I think he realizes he's more of a liability than he thinks. It's true. Yeah, and I think in his, I mean, his seat, his fate is probably sealed already, but Fredo's sort of acted yeah. defiance at that point. So it probably does make Michael think, well, he still harbors resentment, and so he's going to come back again. Now, as the viewer, I don't think you think Fredo's going to come back for another bite of the cherry here. I think he can live and never have another attempt on Michael's life because he's so scared of him now. Yeah. But Michael's not going to take that chance, as we know. But yeah, I think that's. I think there is an arc because you're watching this guy slowly just degrade and dissolve in front of us, losing family, loses K, loses kids. In I mean, he has his kids, but they're gonna hate him for this. So there's no doubt yeah. about it. 
and obviously killing his brother is the final straw as well. Okay, just finally, which of the two films do you prefer? Which of the two sort of sides of this? I mean, so yeah, so no, so um, which of the two Godfather films do you prefer? So this is kind of emphatically mm-hmm. held up as the the poster boy for sequels that are better than the original, and I wonder yep. which film you prefer of the two. I've long fought the battle for the first one, and I think probably the honest answer is that this is probably a better film objectively. I prefer the first one probably just because it's a Feels a weird thing to say. A bit of a warmer film, a bit weird. It does yeah, end yeah. with several people being murdered, so I don't think warm and fuzzy is exactly the film. But there's a, a nicer feel, sort of feel to that film. You can just watch it. I think easily, like you said, everything in this is kind of a gut punch. Uh, but I think this is a better film, better constructed, better, probably just a little bit better on everything. It's you know, with again, it's Man City versus Liverpool. It's yeah. there's a point in it. There's not. I wouldn't argue with you too much, but uh, I think this one probably is an objectively a better film. But I prefer the first. I, I agree with most of what you said. I also prefer the first film. Um, I think for me, it's, I ultimately just prefer the story. Like, I prefer seeing the zero to 100 than hmm. the kind of going down from there. Like, the arc is greater from in the first film. The second film is almost just an extension of that, which I think you said. Um, see, I think I just prefer the first film. I think... I think it's easier to get into mainly because you're invested in one group of people rather than two completely different times. So I think it's, I found it easier to lose myself in the first film than I did the second film. Um, yeah. Which isn't, it, it, isn't to criticize the second film because no. it is like a work of art is almost doing it an injustice. There's also obviously just on the basic, Michael's more likable than the first one. And the, the magic of this film tends to lie when the family is together. And the family is together at various points in the first one. They're never together in the second part because half of them are dead. And Michael's isolating himself more and more. So that fits what the family feeling you have in the first one. It's just impossible to replicate in the second. Yeah. So I think, yeah, similar. similar. If I was going to put one on tomorrow, I would I would put on part one maybe i'll come on next week and say part three is my favorite of the lot uh that would be quite something <laughs> that would be um i can probably hazard a guess and say uh that i won't be you I don't mind the, most... the hot take but that would be the hottest of hot takes no i actually think the most impressive thing about these two films is that at the points in which we've watched them and you watched them before me but i imagine it was similar all you've heard about is how they are basically the best film you're ever going to watch. And even still, with that weight it. of expectation, you still find it hard to put the film down, which yeah, is a yeah. greater compliment than you can almost give. Because one of the worst things you can hear is, you're going to love this film. Cause it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Instantly, you're like, oh, am I? Is that right? And it, Or it just can't live up to the hype and expectation. Exactly. Incredible thing being as well, we're 50 years on. Yeah. And it still works, which doesn't often happen with films often they tend to don't always age as well a new kind of crime family we gotta look out for one another a new breed of cop it is a war out there a new world to conquer a new chronicle to be told wesley snipes 
We will own this city. Ice-T, Mario, that people's, and Gun Nelson's big business. This is the American way. New Jack City. Rated R. Starts Friday, March 8th at a theater near you. New Jack City then. Uh, I do... I mean, I don't know if there's any diehard New Jack City fans tuning in, if they're a thing. Um, dare I say, this may not be quite kid hood alongside Goodfellas, but... I don't, you're not you're not going to get the same level of depth as you've just had for the Godfather Part Two, so I apologise. People probably relieved by that, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we have to phone in for work, so I can't come in. We're still doing New Jack City. Yeah. Um, a crime lord ascends to power and becomes megalomaniacal, while a maverick police detective vows to stop him. I did. I was pretty sure how to pronounce that, and I did check first because I thought I'm not going to embarrass myself here, and then did it with Pentan uh, <laughs> Jelly earlier. So, <laughs> um, what do you think the critics think of this? Oh, good question. Uh, I'm going to say they're not fun. Filmmakers pull off a provocative, pulsating update on gangster picks with this action-laden epic about the rise and fall of an inner-city crack dealer. Oh, good. It's basically Scarface with a hip-hop mentality, but it's also a slickly entertaining and consistently engaging crime thriller. It's, uh, it's Scarface comparisons are not... They don't shy away from it, do they? No. <laughs> they do very much lead into it. Mario Van Peebles' Drugland feature, a relentless hold-on-to-your-hat experience, rarely lets up. The film's use of once imposing, now crumbling New York architecture is particularly effective in underscoring the story with an air of widespread urban decay. Finally, a purely conventional story, but it unfolds in unique and innovative ways with particularly good turns from its cast, all of which make it a worthwhile watch. So they were largely fans. Mm. There isn't much trivia, so I'll run you through it. Mario Van Peebles had formed a friendship with Clint Eastwood when the pair made Heartbreak Ridge in 1986. When Van Peebles took the New Jack City screenplay to Warner Brothers, the studio was interested in the material, but not keen on having an unknown as the director. Eastwood personally vouched to Van Peebles and told Warner Brothers to give the kid a shot. The success of the film launched Van Peebles' directing career. Imagine having Clint Eastwood to vouch for you. <laughs> like, that's just pretty cool in itself. Yeah. Because he also plays Stone, so the guy that plays Stone is the director of the film as well. Um, okay. The story is largely based on real-life Detroit gang known as the Chambers Brothers. Um, the writer, Barry Michael Cooper, says he got the idea for the film after visiting Detroit and learning about the gang's exploits. Uh, so... They were four brothers that sold crack in Detroit. Um, like Nino had his apartment building called the Carter, the Chambers brothers also had an apartment called the Broadmoor. They moved into the four-story, 52-unit building, selling different types of drugs on each floor. It says they sold drugs alongside families who already lived in the building, forcing them to leave or deal with their illegal and dangerous activity. The office... The, Officials have claimed that the brothers ran their drug operation like a large, very organised corporation 
and they became nationally known when they were caught on tape counting laundry baskets of money and flaunting their wealth. Hmm. Always seems like a fairly amateur move, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you do? I remember uh, there's a thing a while back on the social media where people made a big thing of Pablo Escobar never had any pictures of his money. Pa- smart Pablo. Is like, I think that's just common <laughs> sense. I don't know how yeah. smart that is. Yeah, it's... Uh seems particularly like the briefcase thing's a bit played out but a massive laundry basket full of money <laughs> and when it's the fact that it says they were counting the baskets <laughs> I don't know why they were doing this to, to suddenly just bait themselves out like that um, the chase scene between Scotty and Pookie was improvised the original idea was for the chase to be a car chase but they'd gone over budget and was in danger of being shut down so Chris Rock hopped on a bicycle and iced tea, chased him on foot. Nice. Martin Lawrence auditioned for the role of Pookie. Okay. You taking that over Chris Rock? Chris Rock's great in this. He is very good, yeah. I've got one issue, but we'll get on to that. Him and um, Ice Tea are both very good. Yeah, yeah, Ice Tea in particular, I thought. Mm. Um Tupac auditioned for the role of G Money but was turned down due to the fact that he looked younger than Wesley Snipes. Might be a bit overpowering as well. Yeah. Probably a chance. John Torturo, Steve Buscemi, James Gandolfini, Nicolas Cage, Michael Imperioli, and Mickey Rourke were all considered for the role of Nick Peretti before Judd Nelson was cast. Seems incredible that Judd Nelson got the gig. If yeah. you say that list of names. Do you you perhaps look at the fact they were nearly over budget and so had to go on bike when you look at those <laughs> <Yeah>. names <laughs> and he gets the role. I mean, I'm not saying there's a bad job in this, but he's also not any of those actors listed before. You say that, is Buscemi blown up at this point? He would have... I'm not sure been. if he has, but he's not obviously the, the pick of the names there. I, I recognise there are obviously ones. Uh, even looking through them, Judd so, Nelson would have done bigger films at that point if he's had, you know, Breakfast Club and St. Alma's Fire, that sort of thing. This is obviously pre-Sopranos for Michael Imperioli. Mm, Gandolfini as well. Mickey Rourke, I think, would have been a slightly Mickey odd Rourke's choice. pretty standout. Yeah, he's beyond, if the fact that he's not the police chief in that scenario... Yeah, that's it. And Nelson plays a snidey sort of character well as well. Do you think James Gandolfini is just a bit big? Yeah, yeah, probably right. He wasn't quite Tony Soprano size at this point, but he's still got that presence about him, like he's got broad shoulders. Too big a character, too big a personality probably for it. He's supposed to be a little bit, um, again, yeah, a little bit snidey, isn't he? A little bit sort of weaselly. You look at the size he is in True Romance. This is what, two years before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I think they kind of got it right I don't but just most most movies would ever just see that list of names take a pick from them wouldn't they if like you said if, oh, yeah, they, got the, if they got the money though Torturo or Michael Imperioli I'm probably taking off that mix mm, yeah Um. so that that's the trivia from the film uh, we start off the film Harlem, 1986. Nino Brown and his gang um, seemingly discovering crack for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a discovery. 
quite strange. Now, I know this is just a very, uh, I don't know the right word, a, a very specific period of time where you yep. do have the overblown, like, it, it almost looks like if you were getting a fancy dress outfit now of what was like a gangster outfit, this is what you would get. You would have some like gold plated, massive dollar bill on a textbook, chain. Textbook, isn't it? Textbook. Um, I'd forgotten that wearing berets was a thing because <laughs> we opened the film and we've got him on a basketball court in a green velour tracksuit with sunglasses and a beret. Which is quite the look. You're thinking he's back into a uh, white man can't jump. Yeah. You're thinking he's going to do a crossover. It's it's very bold. Um, also, I do think except they're still that early. Like you think that Snipes is going to be some sort of like um, quite charismatic, likable sort of villain. I think you quickly find I'm not sure that's the case at all. I think this guy's pretty awful. I think that was what they were trying to go for at the start. And then it almost descends quite quickly. It, it's like um, they kind of picked up the Scarface thing and ran with it. Because obviously the thing with Scarface is that Tony Montana is this kind of charismatic guy at the start. And as the drugs consume him is when he gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. As far as we see here, like Nino's completely clear of any of the drugs. Sure. So, unless it's just the pressure of as his empire grows bigger, the pressure's on more. But the whole thing at the start, obviously, is kind of the the friendship and doing it together. And it doesn't seem like it takes much. Like, it literally takes his mate's girlfriend whipping her kit off, his bird not being able to have kids. And he's like, doesn't need (laughs) a second invitation at all, does he? No, it's. uh, it's it's very strange. I do think the best scene in the film for me, well, maybe second best scene in the film, is this chase that we get. Purely, there, there feels like there's almost more danger when it's someone chasing after a bike because I'm constantly waiting for them to just boot the back wheel, which in a car chase, it's almost very much, okay, what are you going to do? Because if you don't run them off the road, it's literally just one yeah. driving behind the other. There feels like there is actually more at stake when it's either on foot or when it is on like bicycles, can't see it without um, the one in Enemy of the State. And it, I was about to reference well, it. Yeah, where it gets flattened. Yeah, you know, this is probably what would happen if you were getting chased on a bike. Eventually, you'd probably get hit by something. Yeah, it is very good. It ends as you say, Chris Rock, good in this. Takes that shot in the ankle, and then. Okay, first before that. Gets off, yeah. gets off the crack, gets back on the crack. Yeah, well, we have the thing first, don't we, of them converting the Carter apartment building. So they kill the creatively named Fat Smitty, who they just distract him, and then the girl comes up from behind, shoots him in the head, and they go, that's how you kill someone, and then drive off like nothing's happened. She's always on it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that woman is just always up for it. She hits the old man later in it, so yeah. let me smoke him. Like, Jesus, do <laughs> you ever calm down? And then Nino forcing the uh, landlord, the landlord out onto out the streets naked. naked. Yeah, brutal. That's like... I've, I've, I'll scratch what I was going to say. But... <laughs> <laughs> I won't go there. Blimey. Um, the thing is, those are good, like... Um, sort of, they obviously make a statement and they've yeah. got it. 
and I think they probably briefly have you on side it. But I do think then, like taking over this whole apartment building, basically like filling it with crackers, taking advantage. I do think loses you pretty quick. Like yeah. Tony Montana doesn't do something like that that early. Whereas this is like this seems pretty dark, and you see probably like the the bad side of their business of dealing these drugs. Pretty, it's evident straight away for you. It's right in front yeah. of you. So it's you kind of are on. Um, suddenly you're looking through Ice T's eyes on this straight away. I think. Well, I'll, I'll tell you my one real issue I have with the film. <laughs> now I can't profess to be an expert on the effects of crack, but for what we see throughout the film is essentially you get almost zombified when yep. you're taking crack. So I don't understand why when Chris Rock takes it before he's ultimately killed, he just turns into the most hyper bloke in the world and he's pumping his chest and dancing on the spot. <laughs> but I don't know why, I don't know what he's taking at that point that suddenly turns him. <laughs> I don't I don't get it at all. I think the the more surprising thing is I think you could have that effect, but the time period in which he takes the crack to when he goes to this thing, I think he's taking it the night before, if I'm not mistaken. So there's time for this to have like <laughs> be in and out of him, and he probably should be a wreck at this point, just like slowing down. So yeah, I'm not really sure what. Uh... But look, they they had to sort of show that he was back on it some way, didn't they? So yeah, I think they. You have the story with, and they mention it a few times, uh, the fact that Ice-T's Ice mum was killed by a crack dealer. Yeah. Um, they mention this a few times to kind of go, get you on side with him, show you why he has uh, such a keen interest in getting this done. You have the classic thing where the police chief in these situations just always seems to be the person who's the furthest away from wanting to catch the criminal. Yeah, they actually have no interest in solving the crime. There's two <laughs> the budget. things. Don't you dare go on the yeah. budget. Think, if a cop uh, that's in charge of the operation says, right, it's over, you know, right, this cop is carrying on. It's never over. The ice tea is just going to carry on. As soon as he gets told, look, you're done, you can't do this. You learn that, and you know as soon as, even if you haven't seen the meme, as soon as Snipe says to G-Money, nothing's ever going to come between us, something's going to yeah. come between us. <laughs> if you thought... Pete let Matt into the firm very easily last week. <laughs> it's arguably yes. even easier. It's yes. even easier this week. This guy, who seems quite on edge about a lot of things, quickly turns on his best friend of years, G-Money, and trusts Ice-T remarkably quickly. And he's, he's always just got a, a flurry of women just ready, just ready to send in this pool. Anyone on that float in the pool, he just sends the women over, and it's just supposed <laughs> to charm you in. But he's very professional and on the job, so he doesn't retire. He doesn't uh, reduce himself to their charms. <laughs> when we when we do get uh, we get this shootout um, at the wedding, yeah, and it it does take almost for the scene to finish for someone to reference this guy just tried to use a six year old girl as a human shield. Yes. Yeah, I was so glad the guy did say it because like, I'm pretty sure I just saw that right. I'm not, I'm not losing my mind. Because there's this brief moment where you think, well, maybe he's going to get the kid out of there and he's going to be this sort of like uh, anti-hero isn't the right term, is it? But the you know the yeah, bad guy yeah. who does some good. 
And it's no, no, he's actually the worst of the worst. He just held a kid up as a shield. Just <laughs> well, to emphasize, he's a really bad guy. I don't know what kind of suits they've got, but somehow all of them just have like Uzis tucked into their suit pockets. <laughs> <laughs> Things go bad. And they've got them like tucked down their back. They just Deep can't pockets. sit down all day. Deep pockets, all right. And then we just get firing like that. Um, <laughs> Just remembering Chris Rock's character fighting over the turkey that he manages to take away. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot of the, the policemen going undercover right in front of the person who he has arrested previously. I mean, hindsight, he's literally wearing no disguise, just a change of clothes. As he was going in there, I see how the hell is this going to work? Because there's no, uh, there's no disguise here. This is just, he may as well have just walked in. And none of them react to the fact they have a guard dog. The guard dog barks <laughs> and no one reacts. Oh, sound. Fairly shite guard dog as well, though, because he barks initially yeah. and then stops. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to carry on. It's like snoozing an alarm clock. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, did you enjoy the film? I did really enjoy the film, actually. I thought it was a good film. Um, funny you say about, I don't know if it's, suggested that Snipes is on it. I was thinking, I was watching this film thinking they progressively are, I'm wondering how many of these are on their own supply. So they do, <laughs> are all getting more erratic and a little bit more weird. And obviously G-Money then start, you see him's taking crack. And like, okay, there's at least some of these are on it. I think they're all on it because they're all starting to sort of slowly descend. You said about Scarface comparison, obviously Goodfellas as well, where the drug thing just, you, everything they do starts to like make a little bit less sense. And that seems to be, uh, my thought on it. I thought that and the way he turns on G-Money for being pissed off that he was shagging his girlfriend. Letting a little thing like who I'm laying the pipe get to you. You're bigger than that. <laughs> I, I what an outrageous know. thing to say. I knew very little about the film other than the meme, which we've all seen before. And so I we did all feel knew like he was going to kill him, didn't we? Yeah, like I was like pointing at the screen when uh, it eventually came on. <laughs> Here we are. You were doing he the was, Leo. Yeah, I've seen this so many times before, but it just so happened it, uh, when I was walking into work uh, yesterday morning and I knew I was going to be watching this in the evening, I had um, Notorious B.I.G. on shuffle <laughs> and I had 10 crack commandments on <laughs> and he says in there, uh, do it. Uh, do you like the crack did to Pookie in New Jack? Uh, I didn't know who the character was. So all day I was kind of assuming that it was going to be the guy who gets shot like in this meme. And I thought that was going to be the reference. Yeah. So I thought all day that Pookie was going to be his mate and he was going to get hooked on the drug that they're dealing. And it was going to be that kind of classic way around it. Yeah. Um, but it turns out they kill off Chris Rock pretty easily in the end. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's basically a bystander. Would have been a bit the, weird, weirder, to be fair, if he'd put up a fight because his character didn't really have that in him. No, exactly. But then that's the only issue I took with the film was you obviously have him killing G-Money, which is obviously a good moment. You've got the very end with the court case and then being, being shot, which is good. But just before that, when they're basically on the way to the ending, Nina basically can't fight. Nina, we basically just find out. Bear in mind, obviously, Snipes notoriously can fight. His yeah. character is supposed to, and he just gets battered. Yeah, he doesn't really have any fight in him. He's a bit of a kind of wimp about it. And I thought that doesn't really stack up to what this character is supposed to be. I don't think. But that's usually kind of the weapon in these films, isn't it? The weapon is kind of the you can't convict me. 
you can't you can't hold me down and uh they have the moment don't they where the people are going it's, it's not worth it you, you've you've yeah. abided by the law your whole life don't let him turn you now and he kind of jives at him um they go to court and all it takes is him kind of ratting on someone else and they don't check any facts around this they <laughs> no. just immediately reduce his <laughs> sentence and say all right cheers for cooperating one and year arbitrary a year just just one year that's all you're gonna do for this like they don't they even work out they, on the fly. They arrest this guy on the spot. He just says, look, if I'm going down, I'm taking someone else with me. They arrest the other guy on the spot. They don't do any checking. And yeah, then it's all right. Say, yeah. And it takes this 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 old geezer from before to come in and say, not on my watch. And then Ice T just much. smoothly walks out the building like, my job's done here. It, it wasn't done here. <laughs> <laughs> your, your job has done quite poorly in the end. Yeah, it's been a, just a total mess. It's just a lot of lost lives. Very good. I did enjoy it. Um, one hour yeah, forty agreed. was probably about right. Um, mm. Yeah, because I sure. don't know how what other direction you could have taken that in. Um, no, no. I think it was right. one hour forty. Then, uh, what's his name? Uh, Judd Nelson's character probably dies, and it's like he then avenges him in the end, maybe, or you get a flashback with his mum in something like that. That's the only way you could really make it much longer. Yeah. Shall we do the judging? Let's do it. Just load that up. One of these questions is going to be interesting. I just remembered it. If you made it this far, shout out. Credit where yeah. you. <laughs> um, okay. Which film did you prefer? To go for part two. I agree. And which film do you think is more rewatchable? I'll say still the Godfather Part Two because I have rewatched it an awful lot, but it's it it is a three hour film, you know. It's, yeah, it's, it's I, not I easy. Tentatively agree, and my thing is that I thought New Jack was alright. I don't think it's one I'm going to go back and rewatch particularly. No, my reason to go and watch it would be that I've only watched it this once, so I might yeah. watch it a second yeah. time soon. Whereas the Godfather, I've rewatched countless times, so I'll have to say that I guess. Uh, best moment slash scene for you. Oh, that's tough. That's very tough. I personally think either of the scenes with Michael and Fredo on their own, I think either when they're having the banana daiquiris or when Fredo's breaking down. I think all well, those. Tells Frodo, uh, Frodo, Fredo, no, that he's caught him. That, that's great, though. No, but you. when he's doing like, like dumb and all that, I think there's, they're operating at a high level there. Uh, but I, I'm personally going to go with the the veto following Fenucci off the rooftop and then killing him. I love that scene. Mine, mine would be uh, Tom telling him effectively, like you best kill yourself or we might have to take care of your family. Um, I like or it. the I, I know it was you, Fredo. Where uh, you broke my heart. That's the yeah. scene I've watched the most. It is great. Uh, Best quote for me again is probably going to be uh, "You broke my heart." Just I like so I like saying that. And if, if it wasn't that, then it would be uh, I could tell you my offer now if you like nothing. Yeah, yeah, could have either of those. Uh, if it hadn't become such a a meme for so many fucking clowns online, keep your friends close but you're in and as close as could have been. But yeah. every fucking everyone who's had any tiny bit of beef in their life seems to think that's a thing. Um, there is one also where, where Michael goes, uh, 
I learned from Pop, try to think as other people think, and on that basis, anything is possible. Yeah, that's yeah, a nice that's little line as well. Um, and you can kill anyone, obviously. Michael MVP in this is Vito MVP in this, or are you going someone from New Jack? See, the brutal thing here is Vito, Fredo, Tom could all have a really great shot. They're all absolutely performing at their maximum, but I've got to go with Michael. He's just yeah, I've I've got the charts. Tommy and Mark's the best side character for me. That was a fairly conclusive one. Sir. What about you? Shout out Pentangeli because that's not <laughs> an easy gig to step into because no. basically he's he's replaced Clemenza, basically, who yeah. we all like. Uh, and it's not easy to have some level of feeling for this guy. I think you quite like him instantly. So when they were doing the script, he was gonna be in that role and then they changed it fairly late on. Yeah, I think he had he had beef about he wanted to be writing parts of the script and stuff. I think he, the guy he, they wanted him to put on some weight and he was refusing. Is one right. of the stories, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, shout out to him. But if you're counting Tom Hagen as a side character, yeah, then I'll I'll go with him. I don't know. He's got to be borderline, but I'll go well, with him. I feel like anyone outside of probably Michael and Vito in this I'd have considered a side character. Okay. Fair. Uh, which film is oh sorry uh, more powerful don i thought that was most fairly clear as well yeah yeah <laughs> uh which film is better dressed <laughs> i gotta go with the godfather is better dressed but they're, they're, it is fun looking at what they're wearing in new jack city Add, um, fun clothing a beret to uh veto in one of those big chains to michael and i think you're cooking I think Fredo could pull that off, no problem. Yeah. I think he's got that in the locker. I think he could do with a hat, to be fair. <laughs> You've battered his airline. Better soundtrack? Yeah, Godfather again. Yeah. Uh, originality? Mm. I think New Jack City does have some originality to it, but it does occasionally start to rip off Scarface yeah, in its own it's way too many times. Okay. So it's got to be. Bigger impact, speaks for itself. Best opening scene? Yeah, I'll go with The Godfather again. It's it's a tricky yeah. one, isn't it? Because that, that opening is you probably extend it quite long in terms of if, if you're counting either just Vito's one or just Michael's one, whichever way. I think you can you can count as a great opening. Best ending, Godfather. It's gotta be. And best chemistry. Still go with The Godfather, but I do like the chemistry in New Jack City. I think it does work quite well. That's a sweep for the Godfather. Yeah, probably not the most surprising, is it? No. Um, I won't keep you or the listeners any longer. Uh, next week, we have Fight Club up against On the Waterfront, Marlon Brando in 1954. So we'll see how we go there. Thank you for listening. Hopefully we'll have Keaton back with us next week. Uh, I'll have a word with his boss, if not. Um, until then, adios.